Now at last the hour has come that you have wished for, long-suffering listeners. Here is an episode that you have long missed. Yes, indeed. It's the infamous missing Riddles in the Dark Christmas special, featuring our record-breaking debrief not only of the film, but also of the Riddles in the Dark game itself. I won't beat around the bush, but I do want to forewarn you. The auto quality, particularly mine, is pretty spotty. We recorded this the day after Christmas, and I was out of town at one point recording from my iPhone from the hotel restaurant, so please don't complain about this one. We did the best we could. And don't worry, it clears up once you get into about, oh, I'd say the third hour or so. Yes, you did not hear me wrong. This episode clocks in at nearly three hours total. The Riddles in the Dark record. I'm sure we'll break it in the near future. All right, let's talk some Hobbit. Merry Christmas and happy Boxing Day to everybody. We are here for our, our first um, of many post-Hobbit film um, uh, Riddles in the Dark episodes. Uh, pretty exciting to live in a in a uh, post-film release world and to actually have gotten to see what happened. <laughs> and so um, today, on the, the day after Christmas, and I, and I do want to just toss out there that, that this is not just a dedicated three uh, podcast hosts, but also like the 20-something people that are also spending their, uh, their Boxing Day morning um, joining us in the chat room. We're all just super dedicated to getting together and talking about the Hobbit. So, um, yeah, let's let's get rolling because we have we have a lot to discuss. Um, uh, I am your co-host Dave Kale, and with me, as always, are my my wonderful co-hosts Trish Lambert and Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor. Yes. Good morning. Hello, hello. Good Happy morning. Boxing Day. Happy Boxing Day to everybody. Um, I still have to admit that I. Even after all these years of wishing people happy Boxing Day, don't actually understand what Boxing Day is. Of course, I thought it highly comical as a child because I assumed it had something to do with the sport of boxing. Uh, but uh, of course, I know enough to know that that's not the case. But I've never still feel felt like I have a a full grasp of what Boxing Day is. But that's okay. I don't need to in order to be able to wish people a happy one. So. Um, uh, we are wanting to <laughs> we are wanting to go over uh, uh, and sort of talk about the riddles. Now, one thing we wanted to sort of make clear: we're not going to just do uh, you know sort of like a full review and discussion of, of the movie. We uh, all three of us, I know, would kind of like to do that, um, I, but we're going to sort of restrict ourselves a little bit more. I am going to do as I have mentioned on my uh, Tolkien Professor Facebook page and Twitter account. I am going to do a special kind of response to the film and in particular addressing many of the questions and concerns um, uh, that people have been sending to me since the film came out. Uh, next week, a week from today, on New Year's Day, uh, I will do another uh, another special broadcast where I will spend probably a couple hours kind of going through and just laying out my re- my response to and reactions to um, uh, the film and addressing some people's concerns. So we're not I'm not going to do that today. Uh, you know, address concerns kind of broadly. Um, Dave, it sounds like you're being noisily killed over there. What's going on? <laughs> Dave's got uh, some amazing sound effects going on in the background. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that is. I mean, I mean, there's some there's some noise in the. Uh, I'm, so I'm sitting in the the like the the dining area where they have the <laughs> ongoing uh, breakfast. But I think it might be my I think my microphone actually might be on the fritz. So I'm oh, gonna, awesome! I'm probably gonna 
I'm probably going to mute myself during the parts where I'm not talking. Yeah, it's probably best. It does kind of sound like a traveling circus is going through behind you there. <laughs> Andy right, Higgins says go. that his dog is Andy, Andy Higgins says his dog is barking from all the weird sounds. <laughs> <laughs> all right, here we go. All right, so. Uh, so our primary focus today is going to be on we, we're going to be sticking to the riddles because, you know, in particular, I wanted to go through and address some of the issues that have come up uh, to kind of go over. You know, we spent our last episode prior to the films kind of going through the riddles and, and, and kind of clarifying them and reviewing, you know, the year's worth of questions and thoughts uh, immediately prior to the film. And we basically want to do a similar thing going through right afterwards. Uh, I'm sure that many of you uh, are listening had a similar experience to uh, what I know Dave and Trish and I all had, which was uh, fixating on some what might seem slightly odd moments in the film <laughs> that is might seem slightly odd to people who are not doing the riddles in the dark. Um, but like, uh, you know, for instance, I was uh, telling at Mythmoot the story of my, uh, my reaction, which doubtless took aback the people sitting next to me the first time I saw the film. I, I saw it by myself uh, in a in a, a, a preview showing, um, but it was a full theater. And uh, when the moment when Azog lifts up Thror's disembodied head, uh, you know, I was like, yes, I did this fist pump. And, and uh, the people around me were like, you know, clearly thought I was very strange. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so, so yes, I, I, I you know, we want to go through these elements and 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 talk about some of the uh, um, some of the major uh, components of the uh, of, of of the film. And you know, w- one major thing that I would emphasize at the beginning is I was really pleased, uh, although I I could tell fairly quickly that I did not score very highly. I was really pleased with our riddles as a whole. You know, I, I they turned out I think by and large, to be really relevant. Some of them, of yeah, course, especially some of the early ones, um, were not, uh, didn't end up being relevant because we were making them prior to the division into three films. So, you know, things like the question about will Thorin be taken prisoner, you know, how will Thorin be taken prisoner by the Elven King and stuff, obviously not relevant to film one, but that's not our fault because it would have been, uh, you know, hadn't, had, had they not changed the sequence. But w- with that exception, I thought that, uh, you know, our, our questions, you know, regardless of uh, my own personal predictions, um, the questions themselves, I thought were still really interesting, uh, you know, in retrospect, having seen the film. And I think that we were, we did a good job anticipating a bunch of the things that were at least interesting to pay attention to. Yeah. So I, I completely agree. I, I had exactly the same reaction. I, I too was, I would too was my first viewing was with uh, not a, uh, a fellow Tolkien fan. In fact, actually I really haven't gone to watch this with a fellow Tolkien fan yet. Um, but, but the, but the first time through, I was I was most impressed by like how many questions were spot on. Um, you know, yeah. I, 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 like you, my main experience was also how many of the questions I got wrong. It's like, wow, man, we were we were spot on with that, and I got it wrong. Man, we were, <laughs> you know, wow, boy, we nailed that one again, except for my answer, of course. That was <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, I think uh, we did a fantastic job of, of, of really sort of spotting what where the kind of interesting action would be happening and where the interesting sort of opportunities for adapting the book would be. Um, so I, I'm and I'm, I'm so I'm really optimistic for uh, for season two. That's what I'm gonna. That's what I want to call it uh, <laughs> for season two of Riddles and Dark. I'm really optimistic that we'll um, do even better job, armed with more information about how the filmmakers seem to be working and, and yes. that sort of thing. 
Yes. And, and as dismally as we all did, I am the dismalist. But <laughs> I, have, I have two points to say about that. First of all, I can only go up from here, I figure. Second, I feel like I, I, I'm actually not, not unhappy because I was so cynical about Jackson's keeping to the book. And my answers all were, you know, had to do with how I thought he was really going to change so much. And so I actually don't have a problem being so wrong. <laughs> yes. You know, Trish, I felt exactly the same way. Um, you know, as you'll recall, there were a bunch of times when I was predicting where I said, you know, I really hope it's this, but this is what I think it's actually going to be. Right. Um, and yeah. in particular, one that jumps out at me uh, was my, um, my one about the riddle game. Uh, where I where I predicted C that they would introduce new riddles or change them significantly, um, and I remember saying at the time that I, I you know the reason I was predicting that was that I thought that uh, the writers and in particular Philippa Boyens would not be able to resist you know uh, fiddling with them and trying their hand you know trying you know trying to introduce a new riddle and stuff. So I certainly uh, I certainly didn't want that to be the case i was hoping that that wouldn't be the case but that's what i thought was going to happen so there were many cases like that where i was quite delighted to be wrong uh and in fact i think there there may even in some way have been like an inverse correlation between my uh my (laughs) performance in our contest and my enjoyment of the film so all things considered i'm much i'm much uh, happier to have enjoyed the film and been and scored badly than i would have been the other way around so i think that's really good So I plan to be a lot more. I I plan to be a lot more uh, 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 what sympathetic with Jackson the second time around. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, he certainly, I think, you know, in many ways, uh, for me anyway, earned uh, earned significant respect as far as his adaptation was concerned. But I I feel the same way. Although I'm 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 trying not to get overly optimistic. I'm not. I don't want to make any sweeping statements about, aha, Peter Jackson rewarded our faith in him and he's going to make a completely faithful adaptation because I seem to recall, I mean, honestly, when I, when the Lord of the Rings films first came out, I hadn't read the book in a really long time, and so my, my memory of, of little details was fuzzy. Uh, but I seem to recall really enjoying The Fellowship of the Ring, and it wasn't until The Two Towers where there were you know big, long sequences of, of um, uh, that were introduced that had founded on nothing in the book where I was really like, yikes. And I, so, you know, it's entirely possible the wheels will come off in the second film. And that's where they <laughs> decide to really get, uh, really get crazy with their, with, you know, Hey, we should have Legolas do this. Right. Yeah. Dave has just demonstrated why he is so important to this podcast because <laughs> he keeps our feet on the ground and our you know we, we stay realistic. That's good. That's right, <laughs> and uh, and it's true. I mean, we haven't seen either or, either Legolas or Toriel yet, so you know who knows what's going to happen when that comes in. But plus, there's also the question of now we've got a hell of a lot more story to you know. I mean, we've got. Lots to cram in now, right? Which has always been the concern about where they stopped in this movie. Yes, exactly. And I mean, I do think, um, I mean, one, one general, I mean, when the trilogy was announced, you know, I said at the time that my biggest concern about it was not that they were going to, you know, like put in a lot of filler because I don't, I really don't think that they did. Um, but what I was concerned about was that Jackson was going to be a lot more like luxurious uh, about it and that the editing was going to be much less tight. And that I think certainly did come to pass. Um, I mean, I, 
I felt, I mean, I didn't, you know, I've heard people say that, you know, the, oh, there were lots of scenes that were just filler, which I think is silly. Um, I don't think that there were scenes that were just filler at all from the standpoint of the story and the standpoint of the books. I thought that, uh, you know, what they depicted all made sense, but I, but it was slow in places. It certainly could have been more efficient, uh, at many points, uh, than it was. Um, and I, so yeah, I do think that a little bit, uh, ex- more time was taken than really, uh, than really might have been. It wasn't nearly as tight as the cinematic editions of the Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. films. So do you guys want to do, um, uh, let's go through and each give a quick review. Just, and, um, what I would like to do is, uh, basically give each of us a minute to, to do a review, so a really, really fast one. And in particular, I want, want you to highlight four things. One would be one thing that you think worked really well, um, one thing that didn't work at all, um, your favorite straight-out-of-the-book moment, and then maybe your favorite obscure Tolkien trivia moment. How's that sound? Okay. Wow. Okay. So overall, really, really enjoyed the film. Um, I said this on, on multiple Facebook posts that I actually went in sort of kind of trying to resist it a little bit, you know, just, just to be contrary, but didn't work at all. No. Really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah I know. Shocker, huh? Um, so the thing that I think worked really well was all of the character characters and character relationships. Like in particular, there's just that early moment between Balin and uh, Thorin that I just thought was amazing. And I, I just – it was so great to have Balin tell Thorin um, – you know, oh, you don't have to do this. You know, you've made a great life for us. Everything's fine. Why, why go rock the boat? Um, and I was just thinking, oh, Balin, you know, like <laughs> that's going to come back to bite you in about uh, 50 years. <laughs> so, so I thought that was great. Um, the one thing that I think didn't work that the Azog scenes, like I, I think it made sense to have sort of an orc chase pack to kind of really force along the company. But I just, I think a lot of the scenes with him in it just did not work. And I think it could have been done better, especially that, that extended Radagast the Brown chase scene where he goes around and around in circles, like the worst job of leading the orcs off ever. Yes, you exactly. Know, like, I, I will continue yeah. to lead them right past you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Radagast. I, I thought that was bizarre. And, and, and a lot of people, I think, felt that way. Um, my favorite straight out of the book moment was the good morning part at the beginning, and uh, my favorite obscure Tolkien trivia moment I'm going to steal from Jordan Brown was when, when Radagast the Brown said the spiders were the spawn of Ungoliant. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. 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 So anyway, so that's it. Um, if there's any points you guys want to just, just to follow up on, we can discuss, or let's move on to Trisha's review. Well, I think a lot of what I have to say is probably going to be part of my thing, so I'll, I'll, I'll. Yeah, wait. sure, go ahead. Go for it, Trish. Oh, okay. So I think one thing that worked really well was uh, not just the riddles in the dark scene, but I told Corey this at least once, if not twice, that my absolute favorite favorite part of the whole book, uh, the whole movie, excuse me, was when Bilbo was trying to decide whether or not to kill Gollum. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that we had talked about, you know, in terms of how are we going to show that internal, how is he going to show the internal dialogue? Is he going to have, you know, Bilbo doing like a voiceover in his head or because of the fact that that scene in the book is so much an internal dialogue. I just thought Freeman did an incredible job of showing that internal dialogue. 
with his face and his body. You know, it was just, I just thought it was great. And, the, and, he, and he didn't say ta-ta as he jumped over Gollum. <laughs> <laughs> and he also kind of smacked him, you know, which was, I don't know, for, for yeah. me that was kind of an extra piece of it. So I really like that. Um, I agree that the one thing that didn't work for me, the, I mean, I knew that Azog was going to be back, and I understand, I, I'm striving to understand why. I think the problem I had was the artwork. The, he, he looked like something out of an, he looked like an avatar to me. Every time I looked at him, it pulled me out of the story because he just looked so artificial to me. And I'm thinking, geez, you know, with all the other stuff you've done, you know, with Gollum and with works is why couldn't you have done a better job at least making this guy seem real i mean he just seems like he's a you know video game character so that was tough um straight out of the book moment i have to say the whole good morning that whole beginning sequence i agree with dave i just you know i was like i was i was not even thinking they were going to do it you know and i just was like oh my god and, and i love the way that gandalf did the the gandalf means me part because the just that that um pause that he does and then he kind of laughs at himself before he says me i thought was a great way to um translate that and my favorite obscure tolkien trivia moment although i have to say it ties with the ungoliant was the blue wizards comment you know two blue wizards i forget their names now which i love (laughs) that was great yeah well i uh uh trish i i totally agree about the Gollum moment that was one of the scenes that i felt you know, there was going to be a lot of pressure on pressure in the sense that, you know, and and somebody asked me, I can't remember who before the film came out, like, you know, what are some scenes that you're going to be paying special attention to? Um, And there really, there would not be very many. I mean, I I was ready for changes. You know, I was ready for them to take various things in different directions. And and that happened less than I expected. Um, But there were a, a small number of things which I would have felt like, you know, where I would have started to say, like, I always tell people not to say, oh, they got that wrong. And that would be, um, and that was, that was a big one. Um, and I wasn't really worried that they would, but, uh, but that was, that was a big deal. And I think we talked about it on, on, on this podcast a little bit before, but I thought it was really neat. And I, I wanted to explain a little bit more because I thought it was, I thought it was very interesting. Trisha's reference to uh, to Bilbo saying "ta-ta" as he jumps over Gollum is she's referring, of course, to the Rankin Bass animated film, uh, in which they do that scene about as badly as I can imagine it being done, where Gollum is sitting there looking at the open, uh, looking at the opening. Bilbo comes up behind him in the dark and invisible jumps over him from the back looking like he's playing some kind of like cheerful game of leapfrog uh, and yells ta-ta as he goes by, you know, so not only is the scene robbed of any kind of significance for Bilbo, um, but it, it, it's turned from pity into, into, into a taunt. Like we leave Gollum behind with a taunt um, is just awful. I, I, I mean, I, I, it's, that's probably my least favorite moment in the entire Rankin Bass animated film. Um, and uh but i thought that not only did jackson do a far better job at that and and i agree um one of the it, it's one of the few moments in the film where you know and it was we've been talking about all year with one of the difficulties in translating this kind of a story to film is what do you do with the internal stuff? You know, all of those moments, which are so frequent in the books where the narrator tells us what's going on inside Bilbo's head and what he's thinking about and going back and forth with. Um, and you can't do that on film without a cheesy voiceover. So what do you do? And that was one of the few places 
where he really just replaced that internal monologue with silent, like facial expression back and forth. And I agree, Trish, I thought that that was remarkable and remarkably successful. But what I thought was cool was the fact, uh, as you mentioned, Trish, that Gollum that Bilbo kicks Gollum in the head as he goes by accidentally just because he doesn't quite have the ups to get all the way over Gollum as he jumps by. Um, and, and that actually, the way that that was shot, I, I actually took to be a slight, um, uh, I, I reference back to the Rankin Bass film. There were a couple, and the biggest one had just been very recent. That is, the discovery of the ring by the light of Sting um, was done in the film. It looked very much like the Rankin Bass version, and this is something that Jackson did in in the Lord of the Rings films too. He made several references to the Rankin Bass and Bakshi versions um, of uh, of the the animated versions of the Lord of the Rings films. Um, so that seemed to be a, that anyway, that, that it was a moment that reminded me of it, but with none of the spirit of the Rankin Bass. And what I loved about it is it, it created this kind of complexity where we can see what's going on with Bilbo. We can see Bilbo's moment of pity and the significance of that moment of pity um, as he leaps over Gollum instead of stabbing him. But Gollum is left from Gollum's perspective. His ring has been taken from him and the thief has just kicked him in the head on the way out the door. Um, so Gollum, it, you know, it, it shows us the way in which Gollum's grudge is going to be nursed and why he, you know, you know, how much fuel he has now to hate the Baggins, um, and to, and to, to, to curse his name and call him a thief. We, we, we can see the justification for that. You know, we can see the seeds of years and years of, of brooding on Gollum's part on this, um, really emphasized, I think, in that, uh, in, in what is going to seem to him like a, like a, you know, like a really cruel and insulting kick in the face as he goes by. Um, I love that. You know, I love that element. Um, and I think that we can see, you know, it's very much like, uh, and that kind of thing doesn't happen in the book, of course, but it's like what we see in the book and what I talked about in my book about the way that the dwarves and elves interact with each other. Uh, and we can again see both sides of their points of view, why the elven king is worried about Thorin and, you know, upset about the fact that he won't tell him anything and why Thorin is offended that he's been imprisoned without, uh, without trial. Um, you know, we can see both sides of that. And so we can, we're sort of prepared to accept both of them as good guys at the end, even though they're enemies uh, for now and even leading up to the near battle uh, before the Battle of Five Armies. But anyway, um, so I, I think we can see there Jackson doing a similar thing where we can see that Bilbo is innocent, but we can also understand Gollum's point of view um, and why it is, you know, it's easy for us to imagine and to sympathize with the years that Gollum is going to spend feeling that he was robbed and tricked and insulted. Um, but anyway, um, so yeah, so anyway, that's just as much as to say, Trish, that I definitely agree with you, uh, about that. Okay. So Dave, I did all that and I haven't even started my bit yet. So I'll keep my bit short. Um, my bit is one, you know, the one thing that I think worked really well, I really liked the thematic connection that they established between Bilbo's relationship with Bag End and the quest of Erebor. I thought that that worked really, really well. Um, and the integration of Bilbo longing for home and the way that they brought that into play, that it's, it was not just a matter of Bilbo kind of overcoming that or, you know, 
you know, like him becoming acclimated to being an adventurer and stopping to think about Bag End so much, the way that they transform, the way that he transformed by the end, Bilbo's own desire for home uh, into actually a motivation for him to, 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 you know, carry on with the adventure and to, and, and to sort of be resolved to pursue the adventure, I thought was very well done. I really liked that. Um, so that was one thing I thought worked really well. A thing I think didn't work very well was the attempt to maintain the light tone of the Hobbit. This is something I was a little concerned about beforehand, um, you know, because Peter Jackson has said, and we've alluded to it several times, um, you know, Peter Jackson and many of the actors have said on various occasions that um, although they're integrating the Hobbit into the epic world of the Lord of the Rings, they're still trying to maintain the lighthearted and comical tone of the book. And I was a little concerned about basically trying to do both of those things at the same time, that I didn't know that that would work very well. And I think in many cases it didn't work very well. Um, and uh, I think the death scene of the Great Goblin is one of the clearest examples of that, where I think clearly they're going for a more comical tone there. Uh, you know, I mean, it's supposed to be sort of light and funny, you know, the the... Yeah, but it didn't work. I don't think it worked at all, especially as a kind of, you know, like a mock epic conclusion to their chase scene through Goblin Town. Um, I mean, I, if, if I sort of accept it as a piece of mock epic, it's okay. But the, to mix mock epic and real epic and the same thing doesn't, I, I just, that's dangerous and it rarely works well. And I don't think it did work well. Um, so I actually think that the attempts at, lightening the tone were not very good. Um, my favorite straight out of the book moment. Um, I loved the chip, the glasses and crack the plates sequence. Um, I, I was really glad that that was there and I thought it worked really well. And my favorite element of it was the way they had Thorin arriving later and the way that like all of the fun and levity immediately drains out of the room. Like Thorin was such a buzzkill when he arrived and that was cool. Um, and I thought that that was, that that was really interesting and well done and gave a really uh, was used effectively um, as a really neat insight into the dwarves, which it is in the book too. I mean, there's no excuse for the chip, the glasses and crack the plate song uh, in the book uh, other than, uh, you know, fun and showing that they are having fun at Bilbo's expense, showing up his kind of Baggins ish reservations in a slightly comical light, though not wanting all of his plates and glasses to be smashed. Um, it seems like perfectly reasonable and everything. It's not that that seems absurd, but, uh, but anyway, I, you know, I, I think it, 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 it works, but I think they did a great job with it in the film. I thought it was really neat. Uh, and, uh, it, that was one of the two moments of more comical lightheartedness that I thought did work well because it wasn't juxtaposed with any of the more epic stuff. The other one that I think was their most successful was the trolls. Um, I thought that sequence actually did work pretty well and their integration of comedy and, uh, and sort of, you know, serious action worked best there. Um, but anyway, um, uh, let's see. So yeah, that was my favorite straight out of the book moment. Um, my, my favorite obscure Tolkien trivia moment. Um, well, I mean, you guys took two of the really good ones. Um, the reference to the blue wizards and uh, to Ungoliant. Um, I mean, I think that I, I guess what I would say there is I liked 
the depiction of Radagast as far as his relationship with animals was concerned. Um, you know, the way in which, because there are clear indications that Tolkien gives that not only does Radagast have a relationship with animals, I mean, Gandalf has a relationship with animals. You remember the Song of Lament that Frodo sings for Gandalf uh, while he's in Lothlorien talks about how Gandalf knew the languages of of, of birds and beasts, uh, you know, and that, that you know, he spoke in their secret tongues and was close to them. But Radag- but even Gandalf, by so even by Gandalf's standards, he considers Radagast to be a close friend of animals, um, and birds are especially his friends. I had never envisioned that that meant they actually nest in his hair. But again, like you know, the 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 birds in his hair, the mice when the when the when the spiders start attacking and the mice uh, scurry out of everywhere and climb into his clothes for refuge. Uh, of course, his touching relationship with Sebastian the Hedgehog, I, you know, all of the, I thought that they conveyed sort of what it meant for Radagast uh, to be the friend of animals. And there's this clear sense that, you know, in the writings where Tolkien spoke of Radagast's failure, there was the clear sense that Radagast had basically gone native, you know, that that was his, that was his failing was that he had gone native and just like, you know, came to, uh, to love and care for the animals. And, and that, again, that way in which he, you know, lives this nearly feral existence really as one of them, I thought was cool. And I thought that they, that they did that. They did that pretty well. They weren't, you know, didn't love everything about it, but, but that was uh, something I thought was pretty cool. Awesome. Um, I really enjoy. Uh, I I really like what you said um, about what about the thematic connection between Bag End and Lonely Mountain. I, that is very interesting because it it's 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 a um, it's a very different sort of way to resolve um, uh, the Baggins and Took sides. Yes. That's di- very different from the way it's done in the book because, like you said, in the book it really more comes down to him trusting his luck and you know enjoying me on the road, and instead. In, in you know in the film they resolve them by having him him not so much adapt to adventurous life which he certainly does but even more so it's about him finding motivation to help the dwarves in in the very sort of baggins kind of longing for home which which and that certainly for me one of my favorite parts of the film was the fact was was that was that theme of the you know the dwarves going not just to get their treasure back but going to to reclaim a home to and it's not even just we want to take back our kingdom and Thorin's kingship but it literally is about this is a homeless people and there's a yes. place they belong and they got kicked out of it and we want to return them and so I I thought that was that's one of those things where where they where they kind of went beyond the books although I think I think the seeds of that are in the books. Um, but where they went beyond the text and, and took it in a direction that I, I personally found very satisfying. Um, you know, I, I'm sure there's token purists that might might ha- might complain about it. I, I don't know to what degree those complaints are valid, but I found it very satisfying as a, at least in terms of the film experience. Definitely, and and you know, and I get I think that this is one of the things about adaptations. The 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 goal of an adaptation, I think, need not necessarily be just to be essentially a reading of a book. Um, 
to act to, to to do what you say to sort of take things and go further in the most successful moments the lord of the rings films do this too the 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 thing that i usually refer to in this regard is the whole Gollum schizophrenia thing which works really well in the two towers and return of the king and that is not in the books but you know what it's it's like that concept of Gollum's internal struggle is present in the book um but it doesn't come out to that same extent. And I think that the direction that Jackson took that was fascinating and worked really well. And in some ways, I prefer Jackson's Gollum to Tolkien's Gollum. Or, or, you know, again, what I would say, that as you say, the seeds are there, right? And what it does is it takes that idea uh, and it brings it out and it develops it and it, it you know, because there, it's okay. I think it's okay for an adaptation to play a kind of what if game like that, um, you know, and to kind of say, you know, take this idea, which is sort of implicit there and to, and, and to bring it forward. I do think we get clearly juxtaposed Bilbo's home and the dwarves home, the hill at the beginning and the mountain at the end. Um, and the way that, the way that that is brought out, um, I think, I think fits and works really well and really interestingly, um, both in terms of thinking about what the book is doing and in terms of just, as you say, sort of enjoying the movie experience and what's going on with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I really, I, I, I really liked that. And the way that they played on that, um, in thinking about, I mean, you know, in the book, we don't get as nearly as clear a sense of a people displaced. Um, one of the scenes that I found really compelling um, in the prologue sequence of this film was basically like the dwarven diaspora that happens after Smaug uh, attacks Erebor. And, you know, that scene of, you know, a once proud people, you know, like marching in columns, you get like the little like dwarvish, you know, trail of tears lead, leading away from Erebor. Um that was really cool, you know, and, and I, th and that, and, and then, you know, segueing that to Thorin's, you know, Thorin won't ever let it go and he will never forgive and he will never forget. And we can see both the nobility of that, but also the danger of that and, the, you know, how this is likely to lead to the corruption of Thorin's character. And anyway, I just, I, all of that I thought was really interesting and really compellingly done. And again, it's, it's, that stuff is implicit. Um, either implicit or even explicit in the later stuff. Like when Tolkien himself was thinking more broadly through these terms. I mean, this is something that I think that a lot of people aren't, don't really think about is that since the Hobbit was intended to be, you know, a one shot standalone little story, there are a lot of like the, the, the ramifications, a lot of things that Tolkien kind of tossed off in the book, which he didn't, like which you know the sort of these background stories that he didn't think through because he didn't have to they weren't related to this story but i mean the whole real question of like what was it like for the dwarves and how did they respond to this and um and uh you know it's he, he didn't really work through that um certainly not at the beginning of the story we don't see that at all in chapter one we start to get it a little bit at the end uh with uh bringing in uh, you know dan and the dwarves of the iron hills but um but anyway, you know, in, of course, in his later writings and when he had spent so much more time working out the larger stories and the larger histories of all of the peoples and the people involved, um, 
you know, he, he was thinking in these terms more. And, uh, and this is the way, you know, when he, so when he comes back to depict Thorin again in Unfinished Tales, he has him, you know, driven by the desire to, 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 to take vengeance and to restore the land of his people. And that makes sense. You know, that's what he would be thinking about under the circumstance. But again, we didn't get that in the book. Um, uh, because especially in chapter one in the opening sequence when it was really just primarily a treasure hunt because that's not the kind of story he was originally telling. Um, so yeah, I thought that works really well. It makes a lot of sense. We should probably move on to actual uh, uh, results and riddles, however. I just, um, I wanted to just say one thing. Wait a minute, Dave. Just okay. one thing. Go I'm ahead, just, go ahead, go I ahead. I have ahead. been talking to the screen. I mean, I, we're, I, this is kind of a, it's probably a bad thing for me to do here. But I, I mean, we're all very positive about the film. But I will say, besides the thing about, you know, Azog's depiction and CGI bothering me, there are some things that I don't know if I would go so far as to say as bother me as I think are going to be discussion fodder for us coming up, which are things like moving Bilbo's heroic moment forward into yes. movie one. You yes. know, I, these are ramifications. There are going to be ramifications from this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some other ones, too, that escape me now <laughs> suddenly. Well, I mean, the whole talk about, you know, home and, I mean, that, you know, kind of a little bit of what you were just talking about, Corey, we're filling it out. I mean, I agree, and I also think there might be some ramifications. I think, um, for one, for example, I think one of the reasons that Jackson, and I, we'll get into this more, and I'll just say this really quickly, and then we can move on. I think one of the reasons Jackson might have moved that heroic moment forward and the whole thing about the hug at the end, the bromance thing, yeah, yeah. is because I think what's going to happen in movie two is that relationship's going to get closer and closer, and it's going to make Bilbo's betrayal in movie three that much more dramatic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, well, that's you know. that's going to be. An, I mean, we, you know, I definitely want to do. Um, that's certainly going to be one of our riddle questions for season two, as Dave calls it. Um, is yeah. The direction yeah. of Thorin and Bilbo's relationship in film two, because I think that there are lots of ways that that could do, but uh, could go. But I will, uh, I will, I will save further discussion of that for our the, future episode. But. Yes, right. Me too. Uh, and the other, I, I, I think that we want to talk about more later is the compression of the timeline so much. You know that it starts that Mirkwood is actually Greenwood when we start. I mean, there's just this enormous compression of the timeline. Yeah. So again, not enough time here, but I just want to go on record. Yep. I do. I completely agree with you. By the way, Trish. Um, um, and and I actually that's one of the that's one of the the big criticisms or, or not criticisms nobody's really complained about it. I saw like John D Bartolo put something about it on your Facebook um, you know like thought that thought that that was too early I, I actually completely disagree I actually think that their storyline is going to work way better if they've if they're actually getting along at this point that the, you know that the first film is about proving himself the second film maybe maybe as you've hint, as you've speculated Corey maybe about um, Sort of a growing rivalry, so maybe uh, um, Thorne's acceptance and 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 uh, admiration for Bil- Bilbo starts to turn into a little bit of jealousy and resentment, and then by the third film it becomes outright hostility when Bilbo betrays him. I, I'm I'm looking, I'm thinking that actually works really well. Why yeah. it, it completely makes sense to do it that way? Yeah, and I, I mean I think especially given the trilogy structure now. Um, if the, I mean, presumably the spider scene, which is of course the moment where Bilbo really takes the leap forward and becomes heroic in the books, um, the spider sequence is going to be relatively early uh, in, I assume, like in the first hour of film two, um, and that would be a really awkward moment for Bilbo to have this kind of character climax. I mean, as far as That's thinking. True 
thinking of the films as you know stories with their own story arcs that you know that that need to be kind of internally satisfying um that would be a deeply awkward place having it come at the climax of film one makes a lot of sense because the majority of the stuff um, that's going to be covered i assume in film two uh is uh is going to be stuff that uh that that's post Bilbo's heroic climax anyway. So to have that come 45 minutes into film two would be weird. Uh, so I agree with Dave. I actually, I, I liked it. I thought it worked fine. Um, you know, the, if anything, I thought it was tame. You know, some people have asked, didn't you think like it was totally unlike Bilbo to like, you know, come running in and, uh, uh, you know, and take out an orc like that and fight off a warg? Like, can you really imagine Bilbo doing that? And I'm like, well, can you really imagine Bilbo single-handedly taking on a hundred giant spiders? Um, because that's what he does in the book. You know, if anything, I thought that his coming in to take out like one red shirt orc was a kind of a tame heroic moment compared to what he does in the book. Um, you know, the like, leave it, leave it to me. I will do this stinging. I mean, come on, you know, he's. Well, and, and also, also it makes sense from the standpoint that, they, that they're cornered, right? Like in, right. in the case of the Merkwood scene, there's sort of, you're right. It's, it's almost more dramatic in the sense that there, there, there is a moment where he could, you know, he could probably run away maybe right. and, and survive, or at least you'd be, it'd be easy to imagine him being, having that thought. Yeah. Here, there's, man, there's no. You're not going anywhere, so you may as well just run headlong. Yeah, like your choice is um, <laughs> burn to death, fall off the cliff, or run headlong, or wait until the wolves get you, or run headlong into the wolves. Uh, right. So, so you can kind of, you can imagine sort of that that kind of just sort of that moment of kind of desperate mania coming upon you where you're like I'm just going to charge right in because <laughs> what's the point? Right. So I I agree. I think it I think it makes um, complete sense. Uh, and I, and Plus I think we've, it's really we've had We've had Bilbo waving around his sword an awful lot in the movie, you know, yeah. I mean, way more than obviously he does in the book. And it kind of stepwises, you know, because he has that fight with the goblin there in, in the, you know, in Goblin Town. And then he kind of does his thing with, you know, with, with Gollum with the sword. And you could kind of almost see it stepwise to where, you know, if I hadn't read the book, I, I don't know that I would have been all that surprised that Bilbo made that rush, especially given what you just said, Dave. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, of course, that was one thing symbolically that I was sort of slightly disappointed by but I don't hold it against them and and that is the sort of the decrease of the of the symbolic significance of Bilbo drawing his sword um you know in the book that it happens so sparingly and uh and it's such a big deal when it does you know Bilbo's almost forgotten <laughs> about his sword when he takes it out and uh uh you know right right after he finds the ring um you know he draws it for the first time to kill the spider you know like that's the first time he actually uses it on anybody um but it's easier for that to happen in the book on screen you need to have i mean if it never comes out uh, if the sword never comes out until like the equivalent of chapter eight, you know, if we only see it once, uh, that is during the Gollum sequence and never again, right. uh, in the film, viewers are going to just forget about it. Um, whereas right. again, that's easier in the book. Um, and what's more, when you actually think it through and you try to picture the scenes as you have to do on film, it actually seems a little bit strange that Bilbo would never have drawn or used his sword at any point. I mean, weren't there being, weren't they being chased by goblins? He never, seriously, he never re remembered. I have a weapon I could use, uh, you know, so, um, 
so I, you know, the, the, the fact that it's, it, it makes sense. I, I I do kind of miss it uh, for the role that it plays in the in the in the book, but I don't I don't insist on it playing the same symbolic role exactly in the film. But well, and the other useful thing about Sting too was you know because Jackson actually didn't use any dream sequences at all in The Hobbit, and so the other useful thing about Sting was there in the cave. You know, rather than Bilbo having the dream and waking up from the dream. You know, uh, Beaufort sees this, the sword and says, oh, my gosh, what's that? And it's glowing right. blue. So that was kind of an interesting, you know, an interesting use of, of, of the sword as well. So, you know, I, it's, it's just ramification. Mean, it's not that I just – with some of the things I, you know, it does, it's not like I don't actively dislike. It's just kind of like, okay, well, so this – you know, how far off trail are we going to get given that these changes got made in movie one is kind of – but that's, you know, that's a right. setup for our discussions in season right. two. So. Right, right. Well, I, Kate Neville wants to know. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just I was going to say I think in terms of Bilbo's character, I I actually think we're we're on track, it, or or not necessarily perfectly aligned with the book, but I think uh, the direction they're going in makes makes a lot of sense. Yeah, uh, I think so. It's, it's oh, totally working. Yeah, totally working. Yeah. Absolutely. And even um, what they're doing with the Tooken Baggins stuff, though different from the books, I like. I think it works. I think it's very interesting. Yes. Yeah, I, I thought it was a little on the head sometimes. Like they're really. Took and Baggins, like they talked about it. Yeah. Sometimes I felt like they were hitting me over the head with it, but on the whole, I think it works. So, well, all right. So let's field yeah. um, let's field Kate's question, but then let's move on. Um, I want to okay. very 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 briefly. I'm going to go over the um, the the some of the uh, results of our analysts' predictions and scores and stuff. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it due to my audio um, uh, situation. <laughs> and what I'll do is I will do well. I'll explain. Let's do Kate's question. Okay. Well, it's it's just it's kind of a funny one. Such as Kate says, does will anyone comment on the Hobbit dwarf ability to fall hundreds of feet down rocky crevices and not apparently even sprain an ankle? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know that's just like a classic. I don't know. I mean, this is one of the reasons why uh, my wife always finds it annoying to attend action movies with me uh, because she's constant. My wife is a doctor and she's constantly whispering into my ear. Do you realize how many internal injuries he would have sustained under that sequence? Uh, you know, <laughs> and, or, you know, or, 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 or I will hear her muttering what she is trying to keep to herself. Things like, oh, and of course he just walks up and, you know, gets up and walks away from that. Uh, <laughs> so. So, Dude, um, she must have hated Prometheus. <laughs> oh, we we didn't see it actually, <laughs> oh, but uh, we we yeah, we see very not to. We it, see it, very few a, films actually. It, it's a it's offensive on uh, in terms of that stuff. It's offensive on so many levels. I'll, I'll just give you so a many levels. Hint. The yeah. the 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 main female character undergoes an emergency C-section to remove a foreign body, and then a and then the the surgery machine just staples her up, and five minutes later she's off and running. Awesome! Yeah, that's that's very good. That's very good. yeah. Come on, shake it off. You know, just 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 rub some dirt on it, and you know you're good. <laughs> yeah. By the no. way, I want to ma- I want to place a bookmark here. Andy Higgins has asked the question that he asked uh, us other other places. What did folks think of the uh, dialogues in the Orcish languages? And I mean, I suggested Andy to Corey that this might be something that you and he should talk about in a separate podcast. Actually, yeah, actually, I think, I think that'd interesting be interesting. Topic. Andy, let's definitely oh, yeah. let's definitely talk. Yeah, because because the, the discussion of it on. I mean, for one thing, we. We don't have we don't have a riddle aimed at it, and so right. um, uh, despite the fact that we we are we aren't sticking to our we're talking about riddles today thing, we it, it, I think it's a topic that deserves its own thing, and it also deserves oh, and people Andy. who know what they're ta- 
yeah, Pride it, like it deserves, candy, absolutely. Yeah, it deserves somebody who knows what they're talking about discussing it as opposed to us where, where we're like, I sound like Orcus, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, <laughs> it's very <laughs> interesting linguistically. I certainly. Comment. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the things that they uh, that they did their homework on in some interesting ways. So yeah, no, we'll, we'll definitely do. Yep. Uh, we'll definitely do. Uh, I'll, I'll do a, a, a Tolkien chat with uh, with Andy about Tolkien's languages in general and uh, and uh, uh, the film representations in particular. I say this confidently, though I haven't asked Andy about this yet. But Andy, I trust you'll be willing. Oh, he's to do that. He said cool. He's <laughs> he's cool, and he's all he's all over it. Absolutely. And Sharon right. also wants you to, to include orc scribes on zip lines. Oh yeah, <laughs> yes. That was a that was a that was a favorite moment for many people in the film. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that that would be my answer to a category we didn't include for our reviews. Favorite. Favorite Guillermo del Toro moment. Uh, <laughs> yes. And, <right. laughs> and the the Silmarillionaires coined a term for it that we really want to get on a T-shirt, which is uh, the blind stenographer. Zipline, yes, yes. Blind stenographer. There you go. There you go. Yep. Okay. Well, I guess I I will back off now. I you know I know Dave's next thing is to go through the scores. So yeah, obviously that's very... why I've been. I've been delaying you on that. <laughs> very, very briefly, very briefly, because um, uh, I think what I'll do is I'm going to write up a more detailed blog post about this. And yeah. Do, and I actually I want to get all of the predictions from all of our listeners and do some do some analysis. But um, very briefly, I wanted to especially go over the results from our analysts. Um, uh, so surprise. So in both cases, both the riddles and the conundrums, unsurprisingly. The Facebook voters beat all of our individual analysts, including us, but including everybody else as well, uh, which, which I guess is not surprising. It's kind of the, the sort of that wisdom of the crowds effect. Um, uh, there's, there's been a lot of studies in the last five years about the, the effectiveness of um, sort of prediction markets that average over different individuals' predictive powers. So, so I'm not surprised actually there, and especially given that it seemed like a lot of individual listeners were also beating us so um, but right. the interesting and surprising thing is that the winner on the riddle side among our analysts was Golden Star from Casual Stroll to Mordor. Very um, good. And and I say surprising not because of any anything I feel about Golden Star, but just the fact that, that like at the start of every every audio sequence they ever contributed to us, it started with them talking about how little they actually know and how right. sure they'll be <laughs> terrible. And in the end, they actually both did very well and Golden Star won. Um I, I Father Roderick came in. Father Roderick and, and surprisingly, Mark Fisher came in yeah. close second. Each with they uh, tied. I think got that's 11, funny. Right? Hey, yeah, you know, Father Roderick I, and Mark both got nine. I wasn't. Um, I wasn't surprised by that at all. In fact, it was one of the things that I was thinking within the first twenty minutes of watching the film. Um, it was so much closer to the book than I expected. Um, and they they went so much further out of their way to integrate dialogue from the book and uh, and to stick. I, they stuck closer than I thought to the actual words of the films. And uh, yeah. so I, it was one of my initial reactions that I was thinking, man, you know, this is like the Mark Fisher field day here. This is gonna be, I was I was thinking he was going to destroy us in a rout there for a while. But yeah. fortunately, yeah. We, we wrote our questions in such a way uh, that in the uh, later in the later questions, he, he was penalized. <laughs> <laughs> Um, unintentionally, unintentionally. <laughs> yes, yeah. I do. I want to give a shout out to. So Father Roderick did extremely well. He couldn't have overtaken Golden Star, uh, but uh, 
but he did for he didn't he saw the film before he managed to answer riddle twenty one so he probably could have had an extra point right um and and emil emil um won the conundrums he had the highest score on the conundrums his score on the riddles was extremely low but that's because his answers for the like the first eight riddles are blank yeah. so yeah. I, I don't know what happened there. I, I don't know if he forgot the answer to them. If we overlooked, he may them have or assumed he wasn't allowed to go back. Maybe he thought he he had to start from when he joined us or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's possible. But he had three rights, so it's it's possible he maybe actually we didn't count. He he couldn't have overtaken Golden Star either because of those first eight. I think half of around half of them um, uh, got postponed, so he couldn't have overtaken Golden Star either. But he certainly couldn't have done scored a lot higher than he, uh, right, he did. Right. Same thing for Hannah Harlow. She didn't answer like the last four or five riddles. So. Right, right. Um, she didn't so answer the just last brief. four or five riddles, and she's still tied with me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't going to mention that, but you know, <laughs> now that you pointed it out. Sharon, Golden Star got, a, got um, an 11. An, an 11 was the highest score among any of our individual analysts. Yes. Right. Yes. Which is not as high as a lot of listeners. So yeah, yeah. Our listeners are by far smarter than we are, I guess. <laughs> Although, I I do think I think I think for we'll talk about this later, but I do think for season two, we might institute a uh, a time limit on answering questions, yeah. like you know that you yeah. you have to you have to answer it within a month of it being posted, or else you you won't get it. Because I wonder how many people went through and answered most of the questions like in the in the weeks before the film and had right. had the benefit of a lot more hindsight than um, than our analysts did. So anyway, something to think about. Yeah, I'm I'm going to um, manage the Facebook page a lot cl- more closely in that regard and I'll make sure folks know that they have a time limit and then I'll I'll just hide the question once the once the time limit's up. Yeah. So uh, in my blog post I'm going to talk about sort of which which questions look were apparently the hardest and the easiest based on how many folks got them right. Um uh, but the overall trend seemed to be of increasing difficulty. So, like, the in the in the first few questions, I think the first the first five or so questions, uh, maybe even more, there were a lot where we actually ended up getting postponed. Yes. Or questions like Thrain's backstory, where uh, you know, I mean, I was I was on the fence. Um, the judges ultimately decide to count it. I was on the fence. I thought maybe the time question should just be postponed, uh, but we'll probably reopen it at least as a topic of discussion because I have a strong suspicion his backstory oh, yeah. is going to be oh, yeah. opened up in the next film. But um, so so there's a few of the early questions where we they weren't counted or um, folks got a lot of those wrong. But then there's a trend for for the next five or six riddles where like. Just the vast majority of the analysts are getting them right, and then the last few, the last five or so riddles, there's there's a, a reverse trend of suddenly like very few people are getting them right. So, um, especially like riddles uh, 17, 18, and 20, um, uh, like fewer than three three analysts got it right. So, so I think we're we're actually we're getting better at writing really really challenging riddles. So <laughs> that hopefully will be a, a trend we will continue throughout season two. So that is a um, very charitable conclusion. Yeah, I wonder if there's to. correlation. I wonder if there's correlation to when I joined the team and when the riddles <laughs> got harder. Yes, doubtless. Um, doubtless. So I want to move. I, I don't want to spend too much more time on that. I'd like to to move on if we can to um, to debrief the riddles um, and. Uh, what I'd like to do to debrief them is uh, I, have, I have sort of three general things that I'd like to, to cover. The first one, I just want to give you guys a chance, if you want to, 
to uh, go on about things that you think the judges maybe got wrong in in determining our official answers. I, I for example, Corey, if you'd like to rail about Bilbo's character, <laughs> go for it. About his incipient Turkishness and how I was really yes. correct. Well, okay. I mean, see, the, let me just say that I'm not going to dispute the judges. I think that their answers are defensible. Uh, uh, in, in, you know, in almost every case, um, my. Uh, the, I, I do think um, the 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 one, of course, that Dave is referring to is you know, with Bilbo's character at the beginning. You know whether he was going to be like totally mainstream or whether people would think that you know, whether he was incipiently Tookish or whatever. And I voted my you know my answer was incipiently Tookish. I think there is some evidence for that. Um, in particular, one of the things that really fascinated me about this was. The way in which the films tried successfully, I think, to integrate the depiction of Bilbo in chapter one of the of the published Hobbit and the depiction of Bilbo in the quest of Erebor in Unfinished Tales. Um, and I would emphasize these two depictions are incompatible. Tolkien himself did not synthesize them very well. He never got to the point of synthesizing them very well because he wasn't making them into a, into one consistent story, but it's one of several moments. Um, and in my mind, one of the largest examples of just a flat out contradiction of the published Hobbit in, in the quest of Erebor. Much of what he does in the quest of Erebor is simply, I'm going to tell you some stuff from behind the scenes. Like you don't know, we don't really know what was going on in Gandalf's mind. We don't know anything that happened between Gandalf and the dwarves prior to their showing up in chapter one of the Hobbit. So all of that stuff is more or less a blank slate that he can draw on as he does in the quest of Erebor. But the stuff that he says about Bilbo just flatly contradicts what we learn about him in chapter one of the Hobbit. Um, namely that he was already, that when Gandalf knew him as a young lad, he was, he was adventurous. And this conversation that Gandalf describes between himself and Holman, the gardener, uh, who says that, you know, Bilbo is always running off to see elves and stuff, not just in his youth, but then, you know, when Gandalf stops by the, stops by Bag End to see Bilbo on his way to visiting the dwarves prior to their coming in. So we're talking within months of the unexpected party. Gandalf stops by bag and finds Bilbo not there and talks to the gardener and the gardener is like oh he's off again probably visiting elves or something and Gandalf says oh that's very encouraging and then he's surprised and disappointed to find that Bilbo uh, is, is as you know useless and helpless as he seems to be uh, in, uh, in, in, in the unexpected party. But that depiction of Bilbo running off to meet elves and, uh, and having a reputation in the local community as unpredictable, in fact, um, is, is, as I say, is a flat contradiction to what we're told of him in chapter one of the published Hobbit. And I thought that it's fairly clear uh, in the film that Peter Jackson and team were really trying to bring those two things together. And in particular, I'm thinking of course, of the conversation between Bilbo and Gandalf when Gandalf tells the, the bull roar took story. Um, um, which by the way, is it too late for me to nominate that as one of my favorite, it's not exactly a Tolkien trivia moment, but, uh, oh, I thought of it too. Yeah. I thought of it afterwards too. I thought the that fact great. that we got the whole invention of golf, story related nearly word for word. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I thought that they did that really interestingly to, to make Bilbo's 
really a divide. Uh, well, here's here's my here's my here's my understanding of how they how they did. Here's my reading of the film anyway. That what they were they depicted Bilbo as you know completely Bagginsish with no natural inclination towards Tookishness. Or at least that, that's I think how they attempted to 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 depict him. But they seemed to invite. Um, the understanding that that he was internally divided about that, that he was inclined towards Tookishness, but was attempting to suppress it, um, that he didn't want uh, to live up to the to the Tookish stuff, um, but kind of felt a sort of pressure to do it. Um, anyway, I thought that it was very, I thought it was very intriguingly done. But I do think Gandalf's references, especially to you know how how you know comparatively adventurous he'd been as a child and everything gandalf in that scene makes references to some of the things that some of those quest of erebor things that quest of erebor depiction of bilbo while the majority of the depiction is much more consistent with the uh, with the the chapter one in the published book bilbo um so i i really thought that they joined those two together much more successfully than tolkien ever got around to doing i don't doubt he would have done my suspicion by the way as to how tolkien would have done that is that he would have emphasized more the fact that the hobbit was told from bilbo's biased point of view um and that basically bilbo had kind of hushed up that stuff and made himself appear more respectable uh and predictable than in fact he was um that's my guess as to how Tolkien would have, but that's only a, that's only a guess. That's, that's not, not in any way authoritative. Um, but the film really tries to bring together those two facts. He is boring and predictable and he is also, you know, does also have these inclinations and they explain this through, as I say, through a, through a, a kind of an internal division within him. Um, uh, anyway, I, I thought it was. I thought, there, I thought it was cool. Actually, there are a couple follow-up points on that that I'd like to make. You know, one sure. one is that I think, um, you know, as much as I, I, I mean, I raved about and I still do, you know, about Bilbo. I mean, uh, Martin Freeman's, you know, like nonverbal communication in the Gollum killing mm-hmm. sequence or non-killing sequence. He did the same thing, I think, here. You know, which is he was uh, Bilbo was adamant the night before. Nope, not going. You right. got to get yourself another thief. I'm out of here. And and it took me the third viewing of the movie to really catch the nuance of of how Freeman was portraying Bilbo the next morning, mm-hmm. because he gets up and initially he's like thrilled that they're gone, and then you literally you literally kind of see the change in the face, but it was almost too subtle. I mean, I I think for somebody that doesn't know the book and doesn't know the background, I think it was really easy to miss, and so there was not really for for a quote unquote normal moviegoer, which I'm obviously not. Um, there, I don't think there was enough said that explained the night before to all of a sudden he's jumping over a fence, you know, and heading off down the road. I, I think there was, I think there were some more blanks that could have been filled in there. The one thing they do do is when they get to Rivendell, he knows the name of the place without being told. I mean, you know, Gandalf says Imladris and, and then Bilbo says Rivendell. So that was like one of those scenes, one of those moments yeah. that you caught where it's like, oh, you know, he really did know. But I think they could have probably done a better job connecting those two dots from, from evening to morning. Um, although if you watch closely, you can see it in Freeman's face. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think in, in terms of film, um, having the dots connected doesn't necessarily make a better film experience. Like in some sense, it's more interesting from a film point of view, if it seems dramatic, like a dramatic and sudden um, departure from, from his current 
Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think if I would, the reason I bring it up is because I think if I hadn't known the book and I walked out the movie, I'd be like, well, that didn't make sense. So I don't know. I mean, maybe a lot of people don't, but. And I do think that that scene where, uh, you know, Bilbo is wandering around Bag End the morning after is one of the ones that I've heard people point to of like, oh, that was so slow and so pointless and so needless. Ah, see. Um, yeah, and yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't think it was, but uh, no, because, again, I was waiting for, you know, one of the things that I came, uh, you know, that I walked into the movie theater waiting for was to see how are they going to deal with Bilbo's internal struggle, uh, you know, and with his choice to go off on and and become an adventurer. So, yeah, so that was um, that was definitely something that I was. But, I mean, but, they could but, yeah. have done something like he starts out the door, he comes back in. He starts out the door, he comes, you know what I mean? A little bit more action oriented, you know what I mean? I mean, there could have been other ways to do it. I enjoyed it because I know the book and I appreciated the subtlety of it, but I just think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily get it. So anyway. Hey, if, if you thought yes. that was slow, just wait till you see the extended edition where they include the 53-minute team <laughs> <of> packing. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, saw, you saw that Onion article. Yeah, right? I did. I did. <laughs> I did, though I thought – Actually, I, I I thought the same thing that I have always thought. I think about every single Onion article I have ever read, uh, which is that uh, the headline is always fifteen times funnier than the article. Um, but, yes, uh, no, that's true. That's I mean, I, it, Onion headlines I love. Onion articles I never like. But uh, but anyway, um, yeah, I I, I, I think. Well, that will that will definitely it will, it will definitely be interesting to see on that side note actually what they include uh, in the extended edition, and I am not without hope that we will get a dwarf funeral pyre after as an old bazaar. I'm still holding out for that. I think it could yeah. happen. Bal, it was right there. It was right there. We're almost there at the end of at the end of Balan's narration. I think the extended edition might have it. Yep. Um, so uh, a, a few things that I kind of they're not so much quibbles with the judges, um, but I think some of the, the White Council-related questions, like Radagast's role and Saruman's treachery, I'm, I'm not sure. Like, they, I really didn't think that there was strong evidence of Saruman's treachery on screen. Even like they, they, the answer they chose was that some of the other characters would be suspicious of him. I, I didn't see any of that. Um, mm-hmm. But I, that's something I think let's hold off on covering that because uh, I really want to delve into White Council politics yes. um, uh, a little bit later. Yep. The, one, yep. the, one, the one question where I really raised an eyebrow was uh, the answer they picked for the talking animals conundrum. They, they, they declared that there were talking animals on screen, uh, and I saw that a nota bene was added on the, uh, the conundrum about um, any form of two-way communication was interpreted as talking. Which, okay, fair enough, but really the conundrum was meant to be, will we see animals speaking in English on screen? And we did not see that. Right. Um, Though we didn't specify that. It was the, the, the main thing. This was, a, this was a, a divisive one among the judges, as I recall. I bet. And, uh, one of the, 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 the main, the primary scene which influenced yeah, was. them to say yes was the was the bird, the sparrow that talks to Radagast. Now, I agree. I think that the spirit of the riddle, as Dave, you and I had originally conceived of that, was um, was talking about the... Um, talking animal. Talking like animal speaking <laughs> in English. Um, uh, whereas that clearly is a talking animal, but that's more a question, I think, of Radagast comprehending the speech of animals rather than the animals speaking in human language. Um, yeah. Uh, I was 
correct, of course, about the the non-speech of the eagles. I didn't expect them to talk, and they didn't. Um, so, but you know, I, I think actually, the you know, the one thing that I was thinking about that was I thought that the the way that they did that with the the bird speaking to Radagast was I thought a, a really interesting way to maintain that sense of you know animals as intelligent contributors to the story without going uh you know without going all narnia on it and having them speaking in english um which did not happen at any point uh in the film so anyway i i there i think you know they 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 interpreted it that way and that's fine we didn't specifically you know if we had meant that we should have said it in the in the terms of the riddle so yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not complaining too much, but I, I, well, I am complaining a little bit, but I did, <laughs> you, yes, I you are. Was, well, I, I, and I that's the one I, I wanna... thought you'd, you'd be thrilled that they, they get you because know, you were the one that said yes on that, but you were really holding out for, like, really no. talking animals. <laughs> well, I, I did, I saw it, and I was, I thought there was a sad irony that that I was going to complain about this despite the fact that it that it rewarded <laughs> me, um, <laughs> but I, I did, I do think, I think you're right in that. That clearly, like, so one of the major sort of talking animal moments has gone by, and that was the eagles. The yeah. eagles aren't going to talk, and there's no reason to believe we'll see them talk in future films. No. We really only have two big potential talking animal moments coming up, the spiders and then the raven. Um, and I think uh, I think with the spiders, we already have a pretty, like, we already have a theory about how that might be handled, that, yeah. that it will be played it's going to be played much the way Radagast and the Sparrow were played in the sense that it won't be the spiders talking so much as it will be Bilbo comprehending their speech. Um, right. I think we'll get it. it. We we may even, I mean, I don't know that we will see their mouths moving in time with the words and stuff, but we may even get, we, we, you know, we may hear things when, when the screen is showing Bilbo wearing the ring and, you know, being in the well, Okay. Whew, thanks. There's a lot of background noise there. Um, the, <laughs> when the film shows us, you know, the Bilbo wearing the ring version of the world, um, we may actually hear the voices of the spiders. I would actually kind of expect that we probably would. Um, but, uh, but yeah. And by and by the way, I do expect the raven to talk. I, I, I expect an actual speaking in English raven. Um, and that's largely, I mean, because ravens can talk actually, like real ravens in the real world. I mean, ravens are one of the species of birds that can be taught to to say English words, um, uh, intelligibly. It's not just parrots. Ravens can actually do that also, uh, as George R. R. Martin plays with a lot uh, in his books. So I know, I, like, I, I think that we will see talking ravens. Um, Though I doubt they'll make quite as many florid speeches as Roach makes uh, in the published book, um, but uh, it, it, that will be an interesting question, and we can certainly do a riddle raven, uh, a raven riddle all the way around uh, as we move forward. You know, will we get uh, Roach the Raven lecturing Thorin? You know, the treasure will may yet prove your death, Thorin Oakenshield. Like I don't know, <laughs> um, but um, but we're certainly going to be. Uh, I I think I think we're going to see them talking, but again, it's different. Like the, the raven speaking is different from the eagle speaking because because well, it's just they're just different. Um, we're, it's not the same sense of encountering a species that was 
you know, like totally separate and like, here's here, here are the Eagles with their like completely autonomous internal culture uh, and traditions. That's what we get in the Hobbit in the published Hobbit. But, um, and we didn't get that. Uh, we didn't get that at all in the, in the, in the films, but anyway, I, that will be interesting to see as we move forward. Okay, cool. So um, let's move on to uh, move away from complaining about the judging, to, uh, <laughs> which 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 which, over, which I think was actually very well done, and we thank the judges for their service. We know we yeah. know it was a, we know it was more than likely it was probably a very stressful, thankless job. Yes. Um, and so we appreciate their hard work. And, they did and, a really I, really good job of it. I, I know Trish was paranoid that I was going to like disapprove <laughs> of their choices, um, but I actually didn't. I thought they did a great job, and not just because I got more right than you guys. Because the truth is, I still didn't get very many right. But I just I think they did a really good job, and they did a. Um, I think for the most part, they really really nailed it. Um, but let's 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 get into just sort of more just general discussion about our riddles. Um, the kind of the, the 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 sort of broad topic I'd like to begin with is um, sort of historical material uh, um, or questions pertaining to riddles that we posed about historical events. So um, things related to the uh, the Battle of Azanolbazar, um, uh, riddles that pertain to things depicted during the prologue. So, for example, there wasn't anything. Ab- as far as we could tell about the dwarf ring mentioned on screen. Yes. But um but but that was still a looming question during the prologue for anybody anybody who's a huge Tolkien fan. And I did count my last viewing. Thror was wearing at least four rings, two on each hand. So um let's let's talk about sort of uh those kinds of things, sort of a wider picture, wider Middle Earth history things, especially related to either the prologue, or the Battle of Azanolbazar scene, or even um, just the the Azog storyline. Well, I thought you know one thing I would say, uh, although down to our very last pre-film episode, I was still saying that I thought that Thor's death was going to be the precipitating factor rather than a consequence of the battle. Um, I thought that that worked fine. Um, you know, as I said way back in like our third ever. Riddles in the Dark in our Thror episode. Remember, I said way back then, it's going to be really hard to make slightly cracked Thror work on film. You know, and the sequence as it occurs uh, in the book of that is in the appendices of having Thror like waltz single handedly into Moria and claim the place and then get murdered by Azog as a trespasser. Um what just that 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 scene I didn't think would work well on film at all, um, because I mean Thor it was just I, I really think it would make Thor look like an idiot. I mean it would be really hard to to do that. I think I like it in the books. I think it works very well. And on screen, I don't think it would have worked well. Um, and uh, so that I thought was okay and that worked fine. And I certainly agree. I I think I will I will certainly eat an article of my clothing if Thran does not come back in one of the later films. Uh, that couldn't, I think, have been set up more transparently, especially with the reference that Azog makes to him um, later on. Like, the, the mere passing reference to his disappearance during the battle might have been perhaps passed over, but when Azog then alludes to Thran overtly at the end of the film, uh, when he, in his final confrontation with Thorin there, um, that I thought was just, it makes it quite obvious. But, um, 
but anyway, we can talk about that more later. Uh, I I do think that the um, the uh, the the dwarf ring thing. I'm still holding out on that. Um, I mean, there was there was no. I, I was paying really close attention for any kind of veiled reference to the dwarf ring, and I didn't hear any. Um, but I'm still holding out. Well, I would say hope um, that they're going to go in that direction, that they're going to bring it in in some way. And in particular, I think the way in which they depict Thror as corrupted by the gold prior to the, to the arrival of the dragon seemed to me to suggest that there's going to be some connection. And certainly I think it seems quite clearly proven that they're not going to be trying to elide the Arkenstone with the ring. Right. Now, now are they going to try to light the Arkenstone with the Silmaril? There's another episode for us this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, talking more about the Arkenstone. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I agree. Um, now, for the Azog storyline, ah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to talk about the Azog storyline a good bit in my episode next week. Yeah. So I'll save a bunch of what I have to say about Azog for that. Um, one thing I will say briefly and in passing is I actually didn't bother me at all. I was fine with Azog. I didn't care. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I am, I am almost never bothered as much by visual things as other people. Uh, I, it's, it was, it was, it was fine. I mean, once I, once I, I, I I'm really good at suspending disbelief. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm excellent at it. So I, I, I was, I was swallowing that whole hog. I didn't care, but um, uh, but I generally I thought it was it was uh, it was fine. Probably the one thing I liked least about the Azog plot was how insistent Thorin was on the fact that he was dead. Like that level of denial seemed to me a little bit odd. But yeah. um, when it was so clear that I mean, it's like he okay. I mean, he got his hand chopped off. Like that's pretty serious. It's not not to say that that's a that they, you know, I'm, not, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna uh gonna, gonna gonna cast aspersions upon dismemberment and say that that's not a big deal. But uh, but 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 seriously, like somebody gets a hand cut off and then then is dragged off and then you're saying like, well, obviously he's dead. Like, come on, Thorin. Like seriously, but um. Anyway, but but no, I thought actually I didn't uh, I didn't mind the Azog story though, you know thinking about I mean obviously they're not eliding the Battle of Five Armies and uh, the Battle of Azanul Bazaar as we feared they would at the beginning, but uh, but I still will be interested to see if any of the elements of if any of the any of the like sort of storylines within the Battle of Five Armies that we get in Film Three, um, if any of those are going to be recognizable from as an old bazaar, uh, you know, in, in particular, uh, uh, Dan's role, because of course, Dan was utterly absent. Um, maybe he was at, a, he was at as an old bazaar and we didn't recognize him. Uh, but you know, because we haven't seen him on screen yet, like you can recognize both Balin and Dwalin at the battle of, of, as an Obazar in the film, Dwalin sporting that truly epic mohawk uh, <laughs> in his earlier days, apparently, um, so, which I love Dwalin's mohawk. But um, but anyway, like Mr. T. Oh man, he was. Are you kidding? <laughs> Mr. T would run away, go like crying like a baby at the sight of Dwalin in the Battle of Azanul Bazaar. Man, but anyway, so uh, uh, um, yeah, yeah, no, so I. Uh, 
I'll, I'll still be interested to see, as I said, if any of the like motifs that were brought in, in particular, that the duel between I'm thinking of the duel between Azog and, and Dan, uh, you know, on the on the steps of the of of the entrance to Moria there, um, that are disc- that are depicted at the end of the battle, um, if anything like that is is introduced or used in the Battle of Five Armies at the end, but. But yeah, and as far as the, and this is kind of a segue, you know, Dave, into the thing that you wanted to talk about next. Um, thinking of the broader historical stuff, the um, the the compression of the timeline, you know, it's it was extreme, but it's hard to see how that can be avoided. I mean, yeah. like, how are you going to do over this space of five hundred years? Uh, suspicions are, are arising. You know, I, that's so. You know, I was a little surprised that they went all the way back to Green with the Great Two, um, but not shocked. I mean, they're going to compress it. Obviously, they're going to compress it. But, um, but that the story is so protracted chronologically, it's hard to, for me to imagine how it would be possible to tell that story on film without compression. Well, I thought about that this morning, actually, you know, because, you know, how do you explain to the audience that, you know, these good guys have not taken any action (laughs) for, you know, that they've known for, you know, hundreds of years about the bad guy and not done anything about it? You know, that's probably, they probably sat around the writers and thought, you know, that's not going to be believable. The one thing I don't understand, I think that they could have gotten away with Mirkwood being Mirkwood. You know, it didn't have to start, it doesn't have to start out in the movie being Greenwood the Great. It could have still been Mirkwood, I guess. Well, I don't know. I guess with Radagast living there, that would have been hard. But well, and even that though. I mean, if you're going to accept, if, if you're going to make as a part of the story the explicit connection between uh, the the evil in Mirkwood and the evil of Mirkwood, you know, with the presence right. of the necromancer and the darkness of the forest, and that connection is very clearly spelled out in the books. Um. Even in the published Hobbit, it's clearly spelled out when, you know, Gandalf links the expulsion of the necromancer to the, you know, the return of the health of Greenwood the Great. Um, Well, I mean, if you're going to make that link, then, I mean, Trish, you're absolutely right. I mean, like, at what point do people, I mean, it's like, okay, so over the last few hundred years, Mirkwood has become really evil. Um, That's right. Anybody going to check this out? Anybody <laughs> vaguely curious about this necromancer dude? Uh, you know, no, I mean, it really is something where if you, if you try to narrate the story, not in, not in like bullet list format as in the tale of years, but if right. you actually tried to, 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 to give a narrative of it, you'd have to give some account for like, what were the white council doing sitting on their hands for 150 years while this was, I mean, Saruman might be like, "There's nothing to be afraid of," but you're still, like, look, there's a, there's a, there's an evil forest right there. Like something has happened. What is? Well, you know, and even in the tale of years, they're like, they're like, it's kind of like the White Council goes, "Oh, it's one of the Nazgul, probably." Yeah. I mean, right, <laughs> right, yeah. So, like, let's do nothing about that. I mean, no, I mean, right. it's, it's, it is, it's, it's very difficult. You know, I mean, it, it's very difficult to work that out. And I, so, I don't know. So, it, to me, it makes sense. I, I actually. I kind of agree. Um, uh, this is this is one area where I I definitely I'm uh, this is this is one of the sort of purest complaints that I completely dismiss. Like people saying like oh you know Mercury was bad for hundreds of years. You know I I just to that I just say yeah how are you going to do that on screen? I mean come yeah, on right, give me a break. Right. 
you know, and and it's and and this wasn't an unexpected change either. We called this no. from the very beginning. Yeah, they'll almost certainly compress the storyline, and also, also, how's it going to work on screen if it, it, you know if 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 we're going to insist that things be done exactly as they are in the book? How's it going to work on screen if the first thing they say is so? This entire movie is about Bilbo's adventure to go defeat Smog while while uh, while we all ignore the real bad guy who's in the forest, Sauron, by the way. <laughs> Right. You know, like because that is exactly that is where if we're slavishly following the book, that's where we're at. The White Council knows it's Sauron, and in fact has been doing nothing about it for like, a long just, time, <laughs> for yeah. for almost a hundred years. That would, they've known that would defy belief on screen. However, I will say, like I think I think you have a good you, yours yours is a good point, Corey, which is. Where do we draw the line? And right. I think that the I think the Greenwood the Great to Merkwood transition thing is something that I think could have been done a little differently. Like they could have just started out with Merkwood being Merkwood and just saying have a like a one liner that says it didn't always used to be this way. Because the truth matters, right. what they did on screen, in my opinion, didn't really work that well. Did they show me Merkwood in, in, in the prime of its health so that I could really get to know it and really feel it viscerally when I start to see the decay? Not really. That kind of gave me some, some random shots of, of, of uh, Radagast the Brown wandering around the, um, the forest picking up odd-looking mushrooms, sticking his hands in, in tree and a, muck, and looking concerned. And a bunch of dead animals. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I didn't find it I, – I thought that didn't work. I would have preferred – like I think it would have been just fine to just show me Mirkwood and just tell me, yeah, it didn't used to be this bad. I think I would have believed that if they showed me a really bad-looking Mirkwood. And I wanted to and, see black squirrels. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I would have liked squirrels. to see bat, giant black squirrels. You, you might but still get a chance. I, yes, that's true. But my my complaint about the like I know a lot of people didn't like the Radagast the Brown character. I didn't I didn't mind him too much. I would have I would have preferred he not be goofy. And I hate hate yeah. hate when they do the pipe weed is marijuana thing that yes. drives me bonkers. And I but, hate his, his crossing his eyes. I mean I could have done without him crossing yeah, his eyes. That, <laughs> that was that was annoying too. But my bigger complaint about that is the same as, as my complaint about Azog, which is not so much the presence. Like, I think the Azog storyline was a good one and worked. It, you know, could, it have, could we have made it bold instead of Azog and be more true to the book? Sure, fine. But I think the idea of having somebody chasing the party, giving them a sense of urgency, made sense. I think it, it worked perfectly in terms of getting um, you know, them portraying Thorin's reluctance to go to Rivendell and yet forcing him to go anyway totally made sense. My complaint about that and about the Radagast the Brown sequence of investigating the forest is you spent 10 to 15 minutes of something on screen that really didn't accomplish anything. Like right. Yeah. In the Azog stuff, we spent like 10 or 15 minutes running around in circles um, with the dwarves. I, I, I couldn't – like I had no sense of direction that whole scene. It's like where are they going? Like they could have they simply just said – shown Radagast the Brown leading the orcs off. And then had Gandalf say, "Follow me, guys. We're going this way." And have the and the dwarves would have totally right. gone with him. Like, yeah, we need to get out of here. They could have done that, and they could have done it in about thirty seconds and not wasted all that time. Yeah. Same thing with the Radagast the Brown scene. Like, I just feel like he could have been used better on screen. I was totally happy to have him there. I was fine with Sylvester McCoy's betrayal. I just felt though, like running around, sticking his hands in trees, playing with the hedgehog stuff. Just like I just well, felt like that was. You know, as, as Corey brought up in Mythmoot too, how how could well you know the portaging of the of the sled across the Misty Mountains is still kind of oh geography yeah, they, they, 
they, yeah. they, they, they play faster and looser with geography than with yeah. time. Uh, but yeah, but that, that's that stuff doesn't bother me though. That that yeah. to me strikes me as kind of Tolkien purist stuff. Like wow, geography. I'm just talking about they put something on screen and I just think it wasn't good filmmaking. Like right. that's yeah. the kind of yeah. stuff. The hedgehog sequence, the Azog running around in circles stuff is the kind of stuff that I think, like you said, Corey, when they bought themselves the extra screen time by splitting it. Those are the yeah. kinds of things that probably would have gotten edited down and then right. didn't right. because they had it. Right. But I just felt, felt I found myself sitting there thinking, I'm not enjoying watching this. I right. don't think it's worth it. Right. right. What well, now? Here, but overall, the, the the compression I think totally works. Loving the the mystery of the necromancer's identity storyline. Here's my defense of the uh, Radagast in Greenwood sequence, um, and right. I'm not not disputing your analysis of its not being extremely compelling or interesting on film um but but here here's my defense of it i would say that in that sequence they are doing the opposite uh i and i am delighted to say doing the opposite of one of my absolute least favorite moments in the lord of the rings films one of the moments that i find utterly indefensible in the lord of the rings films was treebeard's complete unawareness of the fact that like a huge chunk of his forest has been taken out by the orcs of Isengard. You know, the fact Mm -hmm. that Merry and Pippin have to deceive him into going towards Isengard so that he accidentally discovers that his trees have, you know, that all these trees have been killed. I I just like that. The idea of that uh, is just so, I, I just, It's one of the places where, you know, much as I, you know, as as I try to discourage this kind of language, it's one of the scenes where I'm just like, that is just wrong. That makes no sense. (laughs) It it just it renders Treebeard into a buffoon, and I and I can't stand. I I cannot watch that movie for that reason. Yeah. Well, I I can I can I I like enough uh, enough other bits in that film that I can watch the film. But anyway, that scene has always bothered me very very much, and they reversed that here because. If you did the, this is Mirkwood, and look how evil it is, but it wasn't always like this. Well, but you've got Radagast there. And for crying out loud, if we have a wizard who is in some way at least approximately Gandalf's peer, whose main thing is that he lives like in harmony with the animals in nature in Mirkwood, like his home is on the eaves of Mirkwood, that he is going to, that, that Mirkwood, the Greenwood will have been corrupted to Mirkwood years and years ago. And he's still merrily tripping along, living in, near the eaves of Mirkwood and being like, Oh, I, you know, maybe something's going on. I don't know. I mean, Radagast, as he was depicted, you would in fact in, expect to be all over the first signs of corruption. Like something seriously bad is going on. This is that's precisely my point. Um, I I think what I would have preferred is come into the film with Radagast saying, "Yeah, there's this growing corruption, and I've been, you know, like at first I I didn't think it was that bad, and I was just trying to treat it, but increasingly I'm convinced that there's some unnatural source, and so I'm going to go investigate. And so what happens on screen is him discovering the cause." Like I felt it moved too fast. I felt it was like do 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 do. Boy, that doesn't look too good, huh? Something's wrong with the forest, and that's why the dull boulder <laughs> right. right over there. I would have preferred to be like, you know, I'm really troubled. The forest just for a while now hasn't seemed right. I thought maybe it was just some some dead trees and dead animals, and maybe a, maybe like a disease or something. But this has been going on too long, and it seems unnatural. I think I better go investigate the cause. Like, yeah. I, I think I would have preferred something more along that. I think that would have worked a little bit better with the time. Like instead yeah. of compressing, instead of compressing the rot of Mirkwood, 
right. let the rod of Merkwood be more of an extended thing and compress the discovery of its cost. Right. That, that's ooh, that's ooh, my hey. sort of. I I have an idea. See, this is this is the really fun game where you do the like totally unrealistic how I would do it if I were making the film. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, do that, but add this one element of Radagast having been complaining about this for a long time and nobody taking him seriously. You know, basically yes. have you know have have you know basically have him even with Saruman. You know, being like, I have been telling you. So I'm like, you, you know, you're telling me that some kind of disease is going on in this world. I have been telling you that something evil is afoot in Mirkwood and causing all this and that this is... <laughs> and yes. you can imagine the... You can imagine the Saruman comment. Oh, God, is Radagast going on about some stump, tree stump again? Yes. Yes. Okay, let's make the movie again. Let's you guys... Let's us make the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no thank you. I think that's a thankless job. Hey, I want to insert I, – this. I'm cheating, but I'm going to insert another token trivia moment because you guys made me think of it. The vampire bats chasing um, Radagast. I, I, that was definitely a good token trivia moment for me. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. Did we, uh, did we lose Corey? Oh, we might have. I don't have any oh, notice. Hello. We did. hello. Okay, I'm back. There, there, he is. Is. there he is. Sorry. Okay. I know. I'm surprised you didn't say anything about the vampire bats. I was yes. No, I was saying it, but I think I was <laughs> muted. Anyway, so no. Yes, I loved it. And what I particularly loved about that was uh, the, the the tantalizing setup. I mean, we'll save this for future discussion to go through it in more detail. But the tantalizing connection that it suggests between the necromancer and the battle of five armies. I, I think that. That, Ooh, yeah. Because the bats show oh, yeah. up, huge cloud of bats, and they've already associated the bats uh, with Dol Guldur. With, so uh, that's, I, I, right. know, that's, that's right. not not. not I, I mean, I'm not saying that I you know have very clear ideas about what that could mean, but that seems to me suggestive. Yes. Yeah. Um. So, which is a great segue to your next. Yeah, that's a great segue to your next topic, isn't it? Well, I did. I did want to just briefly touch on the necromancer's appearance. I think we were totally, totally prescient on that. Oh yeah, oh yeah. We nailed that one. Totally like, nailed not, that one. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know what I expected, and I certainly didn't expect what I got, which is a, like kind of a almost like a a, a bad drug trip sort of weirdo dream <laughs> sort of sequence with Radagast with like this weird sort of shadow thing materializing. That was really odd. Um, but we nailed the whole he won't show up yeah. uh, in any of his previous right. forms. Right. Yeah, I, I thought it was right. an interesting – I got that one right. Uh, yeah, I, I, I thought it was an interesting choice not to ha- – because you know, one way that they could have done – one thing that was interesting was the way that several characters when talking about the necromancer used the indefinite article. That is, they kept saying there's a necromancer in Mirkwood. Um as if and and which was interesting in the context because it, you know it, it clearly Saruman who 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 uses that at one point is not taking this seriously and so he's like okay so like there's some loony down there who is saying that he's a necromancer and who may or may not be able to do some evil magic of some kind but this is obviously not you know a threat to global security okay I mean that was clearly Saruman's line uh, in the White Council scene in the film and um, it would have been you know it, it could have been in in it's not obvious, therefore, that when Radagast went there, what he would have seen would have been, you know, this kind of mysterious shadowy figure. Um, if they were going to go with, oh, like, this is just like uh, some dude, possibly some evil dude, but still just a dude. You know, um, they could have they could have given us a uh, 
you know, a, a, a Benedict Cumberbatch actual human corporeal character mm-hmm. that he, you know, met or saw or something in Del Guldur. And they didn't do that, which I thought was interesting. Um, it certainly, you know, gave it this, the more sort of ominous effect, but, um, uh, but, but anyway, I was, I, we, 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 we did completely nail the necromancer's appearance. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, it was, but it was a little Harry Potterish for me. I mean, it put me very strongly in mind of Voldemort when I saw the face come out at me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it was, that was a little, that was a little campy, but you know, yeah. like that's a tendency, uh, that, that I think shouldn't take anybody by surprise. Yeah, no, it doesn't really surprise me. That much. I mean, it, it's the same thing. Did Dave just fall down the stairs, or did somebody else just fall down the stairs <laughs> near sure. Dave? Perhaps. <laughs> Not sure what that was. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, anyway. we're having all kinds of audio adventures this morning. <laughs> yeah, this is gonna be yes. this is gonna be a really fun one to listen to. I have to make sure I, I warn people ahead of time before you know when yeah, I go post yeah. this. Yeah. Well, this thing. is what oh, happens we, when you do a special holiday episode. Uh, <laughs> That's right. And the the complaints we've been getting about audio quality aren't going to get aren't going to go away after this. <laughs> They're not sure. go no. Away. no. That's right. Actually, maybe they will. It's like, hey, you know what? You didn't like the audio quality before. Let's let's see. How That's you right. Let's go back to- That's right. You're going to be begging for that <laughs> now. Just how Andy, bad Andy, it could be. Andy Higgins says it was the Necropancer. <laughs> yes. yes. That's a, we that's a joke from Myth Moods. Yeah, we should explain that reference. When ah. uh, when uh, uh, Kristen Hauk, who was one of our judges, was talking about the Necromancer riddle, uh, she accidentally misspoke and said Necropancer, and everybody thought this was just hysterical. So uh, It's living been, on. It's we've living been, on. We've been yes. saying to beware the Necropancer. Uh, I think uh, that, needs to be a, uh, that needs to be a Myth Moot t-shirt. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Along with the, uh, along with the, along with the, the, you know, I graduated from, I graduated from MythGuard, and the only job I'm qualified for is zipline stenographer. <laughs> <laughs> we can start some um, memes for sure. On yeah, yeah. I, I think we should definitely have a Beware the Necropancer T-shirt for next year. So, uh, Corey. Um, uh, we 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 postponed the Nazgul question because we really didn't get into any of that. However, are you are you in the the school thought that the thing that attacked Radagast was a Nazgul? And oh yes. Even was a, in fact the Witch King. And Witch do you King. have any like one of the things that I think about? Um, one of the things that I'm wondering about um, uh, for uh, for for sort of the future films is going to be. Will the um, uh, the sort of what is the nature of the Nazgul? Like I, I have a theory, and then I want to do a future episode about this in a riddle, maybe. But um, will it turn out that the Nazgul are in fact um, that, as opposed to sort of their book origins, where they're human beings that kind of faded and never died, will they maybe sort of go more of a direction where the Nazgul are in fact sort of spirits that Sauron raised from the dead or something like that to connect it to the whole necromancy thing? I mean, I could definitely see something like that. I mean, they had in the opening prologue of the Fellowship of the Ring, you know, we got of the, the film, I mean, we got the nine men taking the rings and stuff. So, um, 
the idea. Well, not that... only that. Not only that. I watched Fellowship of the Ring just a, a day or so ago, and Aragorn explains it even further once right. they've they had once the were men, He talks right, yeah. about it. They once were men, and they faded. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm thinking it's probably more that the White Council doesn't seem to be aware of the fact of the nature of the Nazgul. In other words, they're thinking that because they entombed them, they were done, taken care of, and they don't seem to understand the nature of the Nazgul. Well, that's that's precisely my point. My thinking is that. Um, Whereas the Nazgul in the books, the Nazgul are sort of active participants in the events of Middle Earth for hundreds of right. years. Again, we're getting compression here, where it's basically there were nine nine men, they got rings, and eventually they were defeated in the war and buried or whatever. And basically, everyone thinks they're quote unquote dead. Um, and then they escape. And at first, the 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 White Council not making the connection to Sauron or even the rings maybe think like oh it's just some necromancer raising dead spirits all that kind of stuff and then eventually through the course of this film they will figure out you know actually this isn't just any necromancer and these aren't just any dead spirits these are nine very specific specific dead spirits you know who just just by happenstance happen to be the same nine guys that got these rings. And oh crap, it's Sauron. And uh, oh, that's what a Nazgul is essentially. That—that's my thinking. My thinking is that um, that it's not so much that they were in fact raised from the dead, but that actually just that at first that's what the White Council thinks is going on. But it turns out later that it really is—it's more of a Nazgul thing. It's just that they didn't—they weren't aware of this before this time. So their kind of their right. interaction with and discovery of. The Nazgul is getting time compressed into the the, the chronology of the film, uh, same as sort of all the necromancer stuff. Well, and it kind of makes sense if we if we talk about what we talked about earlier, which is if they knew about the Nazgul, uh, you know, before, why wouldn't they have done anything? So, I mean, in the in the direction Jackson's taking, in terms of you know, the, like, apparently not, none of this was known before. I mean, that would make sense. One of the things that I do remember, and I can't remember where it comes from, but I know that it's valid is that they discovered that the Nazgul tombs have been uh, opened up from the inside out. Um, that, that's probably something we discover in film too. Yeah, I assume that that stuff, which was so much the talk after CinemaCon, is going to be uh, is right. going to be in film too, and I would think probably fairly early on in film too. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I mean I think well, I mean there's a lot to think about there, and we'll definitely do a Nazgul episode to sort of think through yes. this a little bit future, further. Future episode, but I, I do it. I think it's a it's one I think of it's the a fascinating opportunity to, yeah. to uh, for them to really depart from the the main the the, the book um, canon. I think, and 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 it is one of the places where the book canon is so difficult. I think for people to understand. I think there's a defense right. for it. Uh, that is like the, the like why didn't people figure stuff out sooner and why didn't they do anything about it is one of the you know if you really think through, you know the chronology of the history of the Third Age of Middle Earth, there are many points where you say like why did the White Council do nothing for 150 years? Why did uh, you know why did uh, why didn't they round up the Ringwraiths? Okay, Sauron has fallen. You know the Ringwraiths are like you've got the Witch King of Angmar. You know you've Got, like what, what? Why didn't they do? Why didn't anybody notice? Why didn't anybody do things about this? And I mean, my defense of that, my answer to that, from a book standpoint, is: don't forget, people, you've got no jet planes and you've got no internet. Um, you know, it's not actually as easy. It's 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 sure easy when you when you 
when somebody in retrospect lays out the whole chronology and says, here's what was really going on, but they didn't know what was really going on at the time. They didn't know what happened to the Nazgul. They didn't know, they didn't know that the Witch King of Angmar was the Nazgul. That's why he right. was called the Witch King and not, and not the Lord of the Ring Raids. Um, you know, so, I mean, all of this stuff was, was not, was, was known to very, very few people knew any of this. Almost nobody knew all of it. Um, and they couldn't, and, and, you know, travel is really slow and word travels really slowly. So, I mean, it's just, there are a lot of things that are really, and, and huge amounts of times pass and people forget and people die. Even the people, uh, even the people who are not mortal. So, I mean, right. it's, 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 it's a little bit easier to understand than it at first looks like, but certainly again, from a film standpoint, when trying to depict these things, um, it's, it, 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 it sort of needs an explanation. I, I can see, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not sure. I'm still trying to withhold judgment on the whole tombs of the Nazgul thing because we have only gotten one reference to it. I'm going to wait and see where Peter Jackson takes that um, and what he does with it within the scope of his own story before I draw. I mean, I'm, I'm unsympathetic to it initially, um, but, uh, but I can at least understand why he felt the need for it. Um, because it at least it does answer the question. Uh, didn't the White Council notice like that the ring rates were around? Like when Sauron fell, didn't they do something about the ring rates? And Peter Jackson's answer is yes, they did. Look, here's what they did. They locked them up. Wouldn't that make sense if they had done that? Um, so, I mean, like I said, I'm not I'm not I'm not totally sold on it, but I'm trying to suspend judgment. By the way, um, Andy kind of brought up a side note that sort of relates to this. You know, one thing I think we need to, we should probably keep in mind is in the movie anyway, first of all, they're not called the White Council yet yeah. anyway in the movie. Yeah. Second, it appears to be more of an ad hoc coming together to rebuke Gandalf than an actual White Council, what are we going to do about the affairs of Middle-earth meeting? You know what I mean? It's not a regularly scheduled meeting or we're not even given any impression that they're even a regularly scheduled assembly. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So anyway, that's, you know. Yep. Yep. For what it's worth. Yep. Yeah, I, that is a very good point. It's it's not clear that there really even is a formal body known as the White Council. I, I mean, right. even in the book, right. they they didn't they rarely use that term. But yeah, it's not clear that this is even a regular thing. The only hint we get at it is that is um, uh, Elrond saying, you know, you're not the only guardian of Middle Earth, which which I, I thought. I, there's part of me that wonders if that was a really, really shameless piece of advertisement for that uh, video game that came out. Included <laughs> uh, in, in the film just so that it could be clipped. <laughs> for, <laughs> right. for, yeah. Yeah. Product placement. I, I, I do. So, so maybe we can transition a bit into um, White Council politics about that very thing because we had several questions about this related to Radagast's role, Saruman's treachery, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe we can talk a bit about that scene. Well, I mean, one of the big interpretive questions, and I'll be interested to see how and if they follow it up, is Gandalf's reaction to Saruman. You know, this was one of the issues that we had talked about as far as Mm -hmm. um, issues of consistency between the Hobbit film and the Fellowship of the Ring film, Um, not between the books, but between the films. Um, We have Gandalf and his really touching faith in Saruman in the Fellowship of the Ring film. And are they going to force themselves to be consistent with that? Or are they going to go in a different direction, even if it's even at the cost of consistency with the other film? And Dave, you and I were 
were both hoping that they would be inconsistent, um, you know, that they would not feel slaves to what they had already depicted, um, but rather would depart from it if it meant depicting something more interesting. And I think that they did do that. Um, and I was glad, as we had anticipated, uh, to see that uh, because I but, you know, Gandalf's look when he hears Saruman's voice and then turns around with that really painful and forced smile, um, that's that it was really hard to read. And I think there was a kind of deliberate ambiguity in there. It seemed to me anyway, it was potentially deliberate ambiguity of is it just that he thinks that Saruman is a tiresome old boar um, and, you know, dislikes hanging out with him, you know, essentially, or, you know, that he, um, because there's that whole question of Gandalf being called to account, you know, made to answer for his actions. Um, and, uh, you know, so is it just that like he feels like he's in the wrong or he doesn't want to explain himself uh, to Saruman and he knows that Saruman is going to be, you know, uh, annoying about it? Or is it something more, you know, do or, or do we see in that the fact that Gandalf does not trust Saruman and doesn't want to let him in on everything that's going on? Um, you know, I, I, I definitely clear, saw, I you know, I mean, I and I when I watched Fellowship of the Ring the other day, I watched the scene where he drive, you know, he drives up <laughs> where he rides up to Isengard. You know, and first sees, you know, they first greet each other. Um, Gandalf was, I, you know, I definitely put him into the petulant little boy mode in The Hobbit, especially, you know, not just his reaction when he first sees Gandalf, like, oh, God, but also yeah. because he and, you know, he and uh, Galadriel keep talking amongst themselves while Saruman's right. talking, you know, right. telepathic texting. But yeah. in The Fellowship of the Ring, I could certainly see. I could certainly see a consistency in the sense of in Fellowship of the Ring, um, Gandalf is going to see Saruman specifically because Saruman has the wisdom and the knowledge and the, he studied this very important issue that he's, you know, he needs answers about. So I could see, although I'm probably filling this in with my own imagination, Gandalf sort of swallowing his dislike or his petulancy about Saruman and going to see him and is, you know, he kind of bows to him when he sees him at Isengard and I'm thinking to myself, okay, he's kind of pandering to Saruman's ego here because he needs something from him. Right. So, I mean, I could kind of, you know, like I'm filling it in probably. But yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 I think it could be retconned. I mean, I do. I, th I yeah. think that you could go back and retroactively fit, fit it. Fit it. Um, but right. it doesn't, I think, automatically, it, it's not, no, right. it's, it, it's not, it's not clearly consistent. I will be interested to see you know, one of my biggest questions is how large a role Saruman is going to be playing in the later films. Because I could yeah. imagine him vanishing almost completely. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't think that his presence is is necessary in the rest of the. I, I was gonna I was gonna make that same comment. I if I was going to gamble, I would venture to guess that we will not see Saruman or Elrond again. Mm -hmm. Um. Just from from everything that Christopher Lee has said about about you know his his scenes and the fact that he he like Ian Holm all of his scenes were filmed in in England he didn't travel to New Zealand right and it sounded like he did most of Christopher Lee did most of his filming over like a couple of days that really to me indicates that we've seen all we're going to see of him and that I think I think that that Galadriel line of call on me if you need me yeah um, I think that 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 heavily hints at how the the the, the confrontation with the necromancer is going to go basically I think that that's going to be a rogue Gandalf mission and uh, there's part of me that actually is incredibly worried that they're going to that that's going to transpire much like the tree beard thing where 
Gandalf's going to show up at, at Dol Guldur, go in, find out, like, oh, crap, that's the necromancer, and then whistle, and then elves will come out of the trees. Right. Like He's going to send up the Galadriel, uh, uh, you know, signal into the clouds. <laughs> yeah. And, she's and she'll, trans, she'll teleport herself there. Yeah. 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 Or, yeah. Or, or, well, actually, worse, you know, from the point of view of the story. Yet for, okay. Worse yet, the, the elves will come flying in on eagles. And, and, uh, <laughs> and, and my fiancé will be like, look, there's those deus ex machina eagles again. What is wrong with Tolkien? And I'll have to explain, no, that's not how it really works. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But, you know, from, so, from what think... you were just talking about in terms of making the consistency, you know, the ceremony consistency, I, I do agree with you, Dave, even from a story standpoint, you know, irregardless of like what Christopher Lee said and the fact that we know his, his stuff is in London and that he's in poor health. But even from a story standpoint, I could see them choosing to minimize Saruman's screen time on The Hobbit just so they don't have to do a lot of explaining between the two stories. You know what I mean? It's like the more they put Saruman on the screen in The Hobbit, the more they're going to have to worry about that consistency later in, in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And so you know, keep them, you know, keep them out. We, we talked a lot before about, um, you know, that, that, the, the, that whole question of the suspicions of Saruman and Saruman's uh, duplicity and his, you know, if we're getting, if we get any of a, like Saruman's trip to the dark side or whatever, um, you know, we were talking about how compelling a story that is and how we can't imagine them passing on the opportunity to do that because it's so rich and interesting, but maybe they will. I mean, maybe they just don't have time. Yeah. I can imagine them not having time. You know, maybe they don't have time. Maybe they don't have the resources. I mean, like the people resources, like if Christopher Lee's not up to not up to it, you know, I mean, and they still, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they decided that it was more important to, to have Christopher Lee than to, you know, um, uh, than to cast somebody as Saruman who could have come down to New Zealand and spent six months. Um, you know, I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe they did. Maybe, maybe, you know, we, we, we won't get that at all. I can imagine that. I mean, I, we, we were, we were both, we were all hoping that that wouldn't be the case because we think it's very intriguing, but you know, uh, it's, well, it you know, I mean, it wouldn't take much. I mean, it's just a short scene for him to sort of start using the Palantir, for example. You know, what I mean, it's like, and in the Fellowship of the Ring, I mean, my God, I mean, I hadn't really realized this until I rewatched it after seeing The Hobbit. But boy, he goes from being this pontificating dude in The Hobbit to this crazy, I mean, he's like wild-eyed crazy in Fellowship of the Ring. Right. <laughs> the right. Is. right. But, you know, I mean, it, it wouldn't take much. I mean, you know, a little bit of green screen action with the Palantir, and, you know, we might get a couple of scenes of seeing him at least start using it or something. It, it, it does, it does sort of, uh, that does beg the question. Uh, you know, we were worried that they would give him too much screen time and that that would sort of confuse the transition. I, I'm starting to wonder if they won't give him enough. That basically, if if we're right and he kind of just does just he doesn't appear in any of the other either the other Hobbit films, he just vanishes. I think that actually a lot of people will be wondering uh, how did he turn into the guy in right. the Fellowship of the Ring? Like, what, <laughs> right. How did that happen? Right. Um, right. So I wonder if I'm increasingly wondering if we're going to get an epilogue. I don't know how it would fit in the frame story, but I'm increasingly wondering if we're going to get some kind of epilogue that shows us mm. um, uh, a bunch of post-Hobbit things to connect us to um, uh, to the Lord of the Rings film, right. or to or to you mean like you a know, rolling and, a rolling marquee of script like text, you know, yeah. like it rolls up the screen. <laughs> Sir, no, no, I mean more like, like <laughs> right. yeah. A glimpse of Saruman using the Palantir. I, I actually, yeah. I would love to see. I know, I, I don't know whether it would work. I would love to see even 
uh, hints at events that aren't even mentioned in the film, but that connect to it. Like, I would love to see like a, a future shot of Dine um, Ironfoot uh, standing over the body mm. of uh, of King Brand, Brand at the yeah. you know the the Battle of Dale during the War of the Ring and things like that. Like a you know a real epilogue. Um, but th- this is a really good question about Saruman. You, I, one thing that one possibility maybe is uh, that we talked about is that that maybe somebody will uncover. Um, um, uncover his treachery and that he will take them out, i.e. Radagast. Uh, I, I still haven't confirmed this, but I think it was an email on Twitter, uh, email Johansson from LOTR Project, did say that he thinks that Radagast the Brown staff is the same one that Gandalf has in the Fellowship of the Ring, or at least it looks more similar than the one that Gandalf has in the Hobbit films. And that led a lot of that led to some speculation that maybe in fact something's going to happen to Radagast the Brown, and that Gandalf's going to use his staff in memory of him or something. <laughs> that so Gandalf is going to loot his corpse. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, just going on going on that completely wild line of speculation. Maybe we'll get a scene at the the Necromancer thing where um, uh, Radagast the Brown has uncovered. You know, Saruman's played some role in this and is running off to tell Gandalf. Saruman will step out from behind a tree and blast him, and then uh, Gandalf will find his dead body and mourn him and just think that he died during the battle, or maybe oh, the Necromancer must have got him or something, uh, and hey, never find I, out that it was Saruman. I think didn't I speculate about this about Saruman offing Radagast? And, and, yeah, yes. we did. Yeah, I think I think yes, we so. Did. We're I, kind I, of in know, love with that idea. I love it. I do love that idea. I'm getting I'm more much more doubtful of it now than I was before, but I still love it. I think it would be cool. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I'm 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 ready. If that happens, I'm ready. But uh, yep. but yeah, I'm 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 dubious. But yep. I do. I think these were all interesting points about um, the relationships there. I, I think it's very interesting. That the White Council doesn't actually seem to be a formal White Council, so that the, right. the line of you know the riddle that we had about Radagast's role on it is tough because it's not even clear what the White Council is, much less what, how he participates in it. Right. Um, I think. And I, I think, think by the way, the, that the the main the the, resp- the judge's response, the reason that they said that he was a full member of the White Council, is a, a tribute, which I think is perfectly accurate, to Radagast's stature in the film. Yep. You know that I think that you know the fact that he was played up as really a peer of Gandalf, um, as far mm-hmm. as his yep. power is concerned and everything. That did. I mean, yeah. So he wasn't there in that scene. You know, he wasn't. Right. He, he, he wasn't in the room at that moment. Um, but since it was uh, it was a, a comparatively spontaneous meeting anyway, um, then that that's that 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 makes perfect yeah. sense. Well, and 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 actually, it's not hard to imagine that they wouldn't invite Radagast Brown, the Brown to the Gandalf intervention meeting. Right. Exactly. Because they're right. like, no, no, he's part of the problem. <laughs> yes, he's clearly they're part like, of the yeah, problem. We're not inviting him. Every time we try to restrain Gandalf, Radagast Brown takes his side. We're not inviting him this time. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, That's... but you're right. Like Saruman's response to Radagast Brown is not, um, who is that again? Oh, yeah, that's right. His response is, <laughs> oh, Radagast, he's really gone off the, the rails. Um, yeah. You know, like, yeah. like what, 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 Saruman, what Saruman portrays is, uh, uh, you know, from his standpoint, a fall. That Radagast the Brown used to be a great wizard, but then ate too many mushrooms. And I don't remember what else he was <laughs> mumbling about while, while yeah. Gladriel and Gandalf were having their secret side conversation. But 
But he, he, you know, he. I think you're right. I think actually, in Saruman's dismiss dismissiveness toward Radagast, is an indication that Radagast actually does have a significant role. Yeah. That has he has over time been marginalized because the other folks on the council don't don't think he's particularly you know useful for their own ends. Yep. Yeah, which is why I I do in our in our theoretical re re filming of the corruption of Greenwood stuff. Why I kind of why I really like that idea of Radagast as you know the voice crying out in the wilderness and nobody paying any attention. It would fit. It would work. But yeah, yeah. So no, that that I actually liked. I I, I did agree. This that was actually something that Peter Beagle really emphasized at Mythmoot that he really liked the fact that Radagast was sort of taken seriously. But so um, let's uh, let's skip over the we we kind of already touched on the the Great Goblin scene. Mm-hmm. You know that basically his death was was actually it, it, it was technically what it was in the book. And off kill them. Just, yeah. You know, like some of our, like our, our answer, and <laughs> uh, our answer on the real did. And I, I actually think, despite the fact that it, it ended up being, you know, technically the same as what was in the book. I think our question was spot on in the in the sense that that whole encounter was radically altered. Yes. Um, you know, starting from the very fact that Gandalf wasn't even present with the dwarves when they were in the cave. Yes. So his showing up was a complete surprise. So, and it was very Guillermo del Toro. But let's um, let's let's. I think there's other more interesting things to talk about. So let's let's kind of move on. Unless you guys have have just like a comment you'd like to make about it. Well, the only thing that I had to laugh about was that a lot of people at MythMoot, you know, in terms of the riddle game, were like, you know, when Thorin first pushed him off, they're like, oh, okay, that's the right answer. <laughs> and then later it's like, no, that was not the right answer. <laughs> Gandalf did kill him after all. So. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we did kind of get that one both ways there for a little while. <laughs> yep. Um, I think the Eagles, the Eagles thing something I'd like to touch on just because of a conversation I have with my fiancé, which is um, – uh, I think I think actually on the Eagles question, we were we were again prescient in that we we felt that that encounter might be changed somehow, um, mm-hmm. and and in fact we did we were correct that that the uh, Eagles didn't take them back to their Irie. they took them to Bjorn's house. I mean I got it wrong. I thought they would take it to Radagat's house, but whatever. yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> Though that I, I think I, is still closer in a sense. Um, yes. Yeah. But I think I think what where we did miss out actually I can't remember maybe we actually speculated about this or talked about it was the idea of of having Gandalf call the eagles as opposed to the eagles. We joked about there. it. We joked about it. We, we joked, joked about, about Gandalf we? telling a moth. Yes, we joked about Gandalf yeah. telling a moth to go with the eagles. We joked about. It. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it when I saw it on screen because we joked. We're like, oh, isn't that funny? Yeah, Gandalf's going to call a moth. Yeah, oh. but they won't do that. That would be a complete joke. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, here's here, okay. Let me let me let me give a a brief uh, defense for Gandalf and the moth. Um, because I actually I didn't mind it. Um, I mean it was it was funny, you know that we and we were well, though I, as I recall that we were joking about that also in the context of joking about the moth being the, the reincarnation of dead Radagast. But um, oh, yeah. But anyway. <laughs> And it was clearly a different moth. It was a completely different species of moth. So it's not like this one moth is following Gandalf around. And in fact, this moth, this moth must be the world's fastest moth ever. Yes. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah. Oh. Uh, like I said, the crossing of distances, uh, apparently oh. clearly within the scope, scope of these films, like the warp coil. And how fortunate been... that that moth happened, that that particular moth happened to be in that tree, too. You what, know? the, right. the supersonic this, moth? Like... Yes, exactly. Yeah, the flash although, moth, yeah. Although, I, you know, actually, this could be one of those moments where when we see the extended edition, we'll, we'll actually see that this scene was completely, as written, is completely different as, as it is on screen in the edited theatrical release. Like maybe what we'll find is, in fact, in what they really filmed was the Eagles doing what they were doing in the book, which is maybe they were out and about. Um, right. uh, you know, scouring, you know, flying over the land. The moth only had to like fly, just like right around, you know, r- around a rock, and like, oh hey guys, I was looking right. for you. <laughs> I figured, I, exactly. You know, when when Gandalf told me to go find you, I, at first I was like, come on, dude, there's no chance you're gonna be dead long before they get here. But what do you know? You're right over here. Great. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, so here. Yeah, let me let me fly let me fly back to Gandalf and let him know that you're on your way. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, and Gandalf's like, there. wow, great. Boy, you are so fast. Well, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. anyway, give, it, give us the, give okay, us the okay. defense, Corey. All right, all right. Well, there are two things involved here. Um, there, uh, and one is uh, with Gandalf himself. Um, this moment in the published Hobbit book, that is when Gandalf is up the tree, is one of the clearest examples of the Hobbit Gandalf being different from the Lord of the Rings Gandalf. In fact, there is something that I have always taken to be an actual uh, joke at his own expense by Tolkien um, in the Fellowship of the Ring. So, okay, so Gandalf is going to die. All right. He cannot escape. There are wolves all around the, the trees and the goblins have arrived. Gandalf is done his thing with the uh, with the pine cones and the and the fire was like his best shot. He's out and he is just when the eagles come, he is rising to his feet. He is just about to throw himself down like a lightning bolt. He's probably going to kill a bunch of them when he goes, but he's going to die. Um, so like they, they are too much for him at this moment. And the, the reference that I'm referring to is of course, the moment in the fellowship of the ring, uh, when the company is attacked by the, by the wolves at night, uh, on that hilltop. And, uh, uh, and Sam says, whatever happens to old Gandalf, I reckon it's not in a wolf's belly. And, uh, and then when Gandalf, you know, strides to meet the wolves with a flaming brand in his hand, uh, and, uh, Sam says again, like, that was an eye opener. And almost, you know, he says, you know, wolves won't get him. And it's like, well, wolves almost did get him actually in the Hobbit. Wolves would have gotten him in the Hobbit. So, you know, there, I, I feel like Tolkien is, is actually kind of being sort of lighthearted and, uh, and not quite drawing attention to the inconsistency but uh but but I, I sort of having fun at that moment in retrospect i think because gandalf the lord of the rings gandalf would in has has much more in the way of resources um would have been able to handle the wolves and probably the goblins uh if forced to under the circumstances um but in the hobbit he's different so okay so if one of the premises clearly of doing the films in the order that they're doing it, Gandalf is different. We're seeing Ian McKellen, we're seeing Lord of the Rings Gandalf from the beginning, even though he still may change and develop over the course of the film, he is not fundamentally a different kind of character, which he is in the published Hobbit. People forget people, you know, read back a consistency into these books that just wasn't there in 1932 when, uh, you know, when Tolkien was finishing writing this. So, okay. Um, so that's one thing. If we're going to have Lord of the Rings Gandalf there and we're not going to change the plot. I mean, so, you know, if, you know, one thing, if you, if you do the thought experiment, put 
the Lord of the Rings Gandalf back in the Hobbit story, what does he do? Well, what he probably does is take out the wolves uh, like he does when mm. the wolves are attacking the company in the Fellowship of the Ring. But he, you can't do that without radically changing the story. Um, Tolkien might have radically changed the story in that way. He was fond of radically changing the story, actually, when he went back to do revisions. But but uh, Peter Jackson doesn't really have that luxury. So he he makes Gandalf instrumental. Gandalf is still the one who basically gets them out of it through his own resourcefulness and his own power um, without radically changing the story. And so that one little link of having Gandalf actually call the eagles is, I think, actually – Although it it is a little bit funny and 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 you know it does it, it does certainly run the risk of coming off as hackneyed like oh here goes Gandalf for his moth again, but it it's it, it's actually I think a very elegant way to 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 promote Gandalf you know to 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 elevate Gandalf to Lord of the Rings stature, um, by making an actual reference to something that Lord of the Rings Gandalf did in the Lord of the Rings films, um without totally changing the story and how like now let's just do this version where Gandalf just opens up a can and takes out all the wargs by himself um, so that's that's one thing that I thought it, that, that's one issue that the moth thing was addressing the second thing what? oh wait do, do, do you want to respond no. to that first Trish well, I, to that one, I do want to okay, say sure. that as sure. much as I chuckled, you know, when he called the moth, I got to say, you know, watching Fellowship of the Ring the other day and seeing the same scene, you know, that scene where he calls, he calls yeah. the moth, I thought, you know, future generations that are seeing these movies in quote unquote order, it was a good continuity. Right. You know what I mean? It was like right. you'd seen it before, so you weren't surprised at Orthanc now when he calls the moth. So right. for future generations, it's going to make sense. I will admit, though, that I did chuckle when I said Right, that. right, exactly. <laughs> and, and that was certainly the risk of doing that. Um, I, I personally I, – I agree with that, and I actually – I think on the whole, it, it, was, it was a good choice in that it makes things consistent. My, my one complaint, though, is that it, it forced me um, – you know, like basically coming out of the meeting or the meeting, the movie, my fiance Teresa was like, "Oh, Tolkien and those Deus Ex Machina eagles, are, you know, always there to save the day." And and I and I and so I had to very carefully explain to her. Actually, that's not the way it was in the book. In the book, they were actually out on their own business and, and right. you know, and and happened to be there. Which, you know, you could technically sort of describe. You could say that that is in fact exactly sort of the the kind of eucatastrophe mechanic of Tolkien going on and that he is that is how he uses them but the the issue is that in, you know the in the way that they're portrayed in the films they really seem to only exist to rescue people and they don't really do anything else and they don't have their own set of priorities or or that kind of stuff and i think that's the one thing i mourn i mourn the fact that the eagles have been reduced to a um uh, a a um sort of a, a story gimmick or a device, as opposed to being characters with their own set of goals and motivations, and and um, uh, you know, and, and priorities and things that they're doing and stuff. Like I think the, the, that's something I really like about the the Hobbit yeah, book. That the Eagles, yeah. the Eagles have their own business, and they're actually like, you know, we're actually not even that. Ex- we we really had very little interest in in saving you. We just wanted to screw over the wolves, um, right? You know, but we right. don't care that much about you. And I, I just – I mourn that that kind of does – that's one of those things where yeah. I understand why the film worked the way it does. I just mourn the fact that, that people who haven't read the books come away with an impression that Tolkien 
Tolkien have these just completely mechanical eagles who aren't actually fully. When in doubt, bring in the characters. eagles. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh god, yeah. wait until the Battle of Five Armies. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. If Teresa thinks that's bad now, wait until she sees movie three. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, and that will be interesting. I, I I do agree that that's the consequence, but but that's exactly that was sort of exactly leading into my second point. So the one thing that it that it that the moth accomplishes is elevating Gandalf in a way that remains consistent to the overall plot line. But the other thing is a way to get the Eagles involved without having that. If we don't have that Eagle perspective, which we're never given in the book, you'll recall Tolkien segues into the Eagles. Tolkien's explanation of the Eagles arrival in the nick of time to rescue them stems from the Eagles general watchfulness. And that scene that we get from the Eagles perspective, where we actually get dialogue from the Lord of the Eagles as they're flying around, minding their own business and having really sharp eyes. And it's not being very difficult to see fire in the dark. Anyway, they see, Oh, there's something going on the way, you know, what's all this to do in the forest tonight. Um, and then they go to investigate. And when they go to investigate, they find, Oh, look, it's our friend Gandalf up a burning tree surrounded by goblins. Why don't we just like swoop down and pick him up because I owe him a favor. Um, and again, none of, all of that sort of makes sense on its own. But how do you replace that scene, that initial scene of the Lord of the Eagles commenting to some of his other eagle companions and underlings, oh, uh, hey, let's go investigate this and see what's going on. Um, we don't get that, and I, we couldn't get that in this film, um, not without... Uh, investing way more time and giving us that sense of the autonomous ego culture, the thing that you're, that you're mourning, uh, Dave, which, which again, which makes sense, but clearly they've made the choice. We're not going to do the talking animal thing. We're not going to see the ego culture, in which case, again, how do you do it? How do you do, um, you know, uh, making them, uh, they're going to look like a deus ex machina no matter what. I mean, even if you showed them in advance, here are the eagles minding their own business, flying around. And then we switch back to the dwarves running away from the wargs and being and running up the trees. I mean, it's it it would so having some link, having a mechanism. I think Whoops. actually yeah, sorry about that. What was that? I don't know. Anyway, having a mechanism. Um, well, I... <laughs> yeah, sorry. Well, I just got ha- having a mechanism to bring the eagles in. Um Makes sense. And the moth, and you know, Dave, as you say, even as you were joking before, the moth does not actually have to fly that far. This is the eagle's territory. You know, they're, they're right there. There's not even any reason to think that in a direct line, their iries are all that far away from this place. Um, you know, so, and in any case, the idea that there might be some eagles flying around here, uh, you know, it just, it's not all that far fetched. So, um, but but again, without being given that insight, without being given any kind of explanation for how that could have happened, um, it makes sense that they're going to simplify that by giving a direct link, by sending a messenger between Gandalf and them uh, to bring them in. And now they're coming in as explained, and it goes on Gandalf's resume. So those yep. two things, I think, make sense. Yep, completely agree. I just it just it makes me sad when when people. Uh, attribute, you know, the, yeah. it's just one of those cases where people aren't familiar with the books look and say, I can't, you know, like, oh, that Tolkien, I can't believe he did this. And, and yeah. you as a Tolkien fan are like, no, he did it. It's not him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. Um, so let's see. Uh, 
so actually, finally, we're getting to to I think the two meatiest things that we probably want to discuss, um, <laughs> and, which are relevant and, to our. And I'm running low on time here, so we're yeah, gonna have to save yeah. some of our. No, no. Yeah. Be quick and save well, some of it. I think. Well, may, maybe maybe there maybe we can do them uh, efficiently. Let's talk first about the riddle game. Um, yes. Uh, so so. I think actually this is these are two of I think our very best questions. Where one we at, we really wondered how they would alter the scene um, yep. in terms of the riddles, and 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 they defied our expectations and did not alter the riddles very much. Yes. Um, and then the other thing relates to the the how the the scene would unfold. We wondered would they do it as one long continuous scene where they break it up? And again, I think they pleasantly surprised us surprised us yeah. by. By not breaking it up. Yeah. 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 I was really surprised about that and, and glad, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that was, I mean, I thought, I thought that what, and even what they did, um, the, when we talked about Gollum and Gollum's characterization, I had been hoping to see a difference. I was hoping they wouldn't just trot out the two towers Gollum um, because I wanted to see some sense of progress, you know, that Gollum, while he mm-hmm. still had the ring for one in one way or another was different from the Gollum after having been deprived of the ring for decades. Um, and I, you know, we didn't get that. We clearly got a, you know, the two towers Gollum uh, in that scene, but, you know, ha- having registered that particular disappointment um, and, mm-hmm how they did it was brilliant. I thought the mm-hmm. way that they turned the riddle game into essentially a three-way conversation was fantastic. I thought that it was just, I thought the most hands down, most successful scene in the whole film. And, and, and Bilbo, you know, cause I think we talked about this at Mythmoot where on the trailers, you know, where, for example, we see that scene where Gollum says, you know, if you win, uh, we show you the way out. If if we win, we eat it whole. And then with hardly a with hardly a, a reaction at all, Bilbo says, "Fair enough." Well, in the movie, right. that's different. It takes him longer, and, and it's clearly Bilbo is trying to humor this obviously psychotic, crazy dude. Yes. you know, and keep himself yes. alive. <laughs> yes, Bilbo's Bilbo's detection of the two different personalities and the way that he's trying to play the one personality off right. the other and keep the keep the nice Gollum talking as long as he can to keep the nasty Gollum from breaking in. Uh, like that whole dynamic of that conversation was masterfully done. Uh, and uh, and yes, I, I absolutely. There's so many things that were contextualized so much better uh, in context in that work. You know, so yeah, that was one of the things that I was concerned about, about Bilbo's depiction from the trailers. But, uh, but I thought in, again, in context worked brilliantly. And I thought both Andy Serkis and Martin Freeman were amazing in that. Oh story. yeah. They really were. Yeah, the I, other thing I really yeah. liked too was, um, I'll, and I'll let you speak in just a second, Dave, <laughs> was, <laughs> do you remember when, when Go- Gollum picked up the rock, you know, and for, I think it was the third riddle, picked up the rock. And then um, he got mad when Bilbo asked the question about, what's in my pocket and and when he throws the rock Bilbo goes oh you know like he doesn't say it out loud but he he's like you can see him he's like oh you were gonna you you know you were planning yeah. to cheat anywhere you were gonna you know you were gonna brain me with that thing um which I thought was just so it was so understated but so clear yes. yeah and that plays then later into the non-killing scene so anyway mm-hmm. okay okay Dave <laughs> I was just I was pleasantly surprised. You know, Corey Corey worried that they might rewrite the riddles, especially because because these are pretty old fashioned riddles. Um, but 
but they left him alone. And and in fact, yeah. and in fact, your your prediction was right, Corey. Like I, the number of people I heard uh, commenting on like, man, I didn't know the answers to any of those riddles. Right. And it's like, of course, we know them. We've read the book so many times. But but uh, I thought that was great. I was really satisfied by that. There, yeah. you know, I I think there's certain character moments that worked better than others. I I'm not sure quite how I feel about how um, the whole uh, like. Like I, I think I, I, I love the I love the in the book when he answers the time riddle. I love the way that happens and I yes. I don't think I like this quite as much, but 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 I mean those are really minor things. And th- those are the kinds of things that, that me as purist I'm trying not to fixate on on trivial little, you know, oh it's so much better in the book type right. stuff. Well I, of I course think... one of the consequences of that, there is a thematic consequence to that particular change, and that is a de accentuation of luck. Um, the the narrator in the riddles in the dark sequence in the book emphasizes many times how Bilbo is saved by pure luck with the fish jumping and with the accidentally saying the right answer to Gollum's last riddle and then accidentally you know uttering the final conclusive question Um, I mean all of those things happen by chance and the narrator again emphasizes how they happen by chance Mm -hmm. um and that element, that element of chance is removed almost completely. Um, nothing happens by luck other than maybe like th- th- there was, I thought, a reference to the fish jumping thing because they cut the fish riddle concerning which, wow, that I couldn't believe. But anyway, they um, uh, th- th- there was like a reference to the fish jumping thing, you know, how Bilbo, the answer to the riddle was suggested by an atmospheric condition with the wind thing, you know, and seeing the ripple across mm-hmm. the surface of the water. And that suggested the, the wind answer to Bilbo. So that was the only moment in that sequence as it was depicted in the film where I could see that same kind of luck element in place. But that was very much de-accentuated, um, I and, thought. And that's kind of true throughout the film, isn't it? Not necessarily. Yeah. They up, oh, they really? played up the destiny thing, and that you know, like the they they oh. that you know that was one of the places where I felt where I was feeling really uh, where I was really happy about it, um, where it was like the like like Elrond's lines about fate um, in Rivendell when he's talking about the moon letters and how insanely unlikely it is that he would happen to be holding that map in his hand on the exact one day mm-hmm. in phase <laughs> of the moon where it would work. Um, you know, they, 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 you know, that was like, you know, I don't know. I mean, that was definitely a, a, a moment where I was like, man, it's, it's like, it's like they read my book before they wrote that part of the script. I mean, that was awesome. <laughs> um, so that element, and I, and similarly, I liked, um, you know, Owen's stuff about prophecy and destiny in the unexpected party when they were talking about, you know, the the portents and everything like that. I liked that element because, again, it basically what it did is it reads back into the beginning the talk which is so prevalent by the end of the story, but which wasn't there. Um, and I think that Tolkien would have done the same thing. That is, if he were rewriting the story, I would have expected more of that stuff, more of the more of the luck and the destiny stuff at the beginning, because it, that's clearly something that comes in uh, as he moved through the story, and which, in writing and rewriting, uh, he emphasized more and more um, as he got right. to the end. So, um, so, so that that part of it I liked. I mean, it's hard to do, without the narrator's voice. It's hard to get those kind of. Uh, you know, luck of an unusual kind was with Bilbo at this point. I know that's a barrel reference, but still, you know, that kind of reference that the that the narrator makes, it's hard to get that element on film without a narrative voice. And um, and and probably and and when they do portray it on on 
screen, I think you're right. I think it will be more portrayed as fate or destiny because luck doesn't really mean the same in modern parlance. We don't interpret the word luck in that sense. Do right. We? And the fact is, is that it's much more likely just to come across as hokey. I mean, I've yes. heard people complain about the wind thing, like, oh, like, what are the odds that a wind would kick up right at that moment? That, like, basically, <laughs> when you have something happen just by luck, um, even in books, but especially in films, uh, audiences tend to be really resistant to that. Yeah, that's true. Yep. Yeah, yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right. I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. Um, so uh, let's start winding things down. I do one thing I would like to comment on. You know, I think we're probably going to have a lot more discussion about Bilbo's character development. Probably another riddle, because yeah. really that is one of the central Definitely. themes. I, we'll probably have another, maybe a riddle for each of the next films. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about his character. We touched on his his initial portrayal already. Um, there are two things that I think were also interesting related to his character that also relate to our riddles. Um, man, boy, we were so spot on. Um, <laughs> one is the the troll scene, which which I thought the troll scene I think was 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 potentially one of the most controversial to determine a correct answer for because there were so many different things going on, mm-hmm. and 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 some of them were you know uh, some of them were were unexpected, like the fact that Bilbo would be the one who would be buying playing for time yeah, as opposed the to tactic, the dwarves yeah. or Gandalf. But there was also an action scene, and there was also Gandalf's magic, but it was subtle magic. Um, mm-hmm. But I thought that was that was interesting and cool, and and I liked the more I thought about, the more I really liked that touch um and then the other thing that i like the thing i really wanted to talk about is the one of the fine you know bilbo's little speech after they reunite following the the gob you know the encounter with the goblins i think was great um Mm -hmm. and and again that was something that i think we were prescient about how will they execute that scene and and i think um what they did with it was beautiful like they they kept the core of the book which is bilbo Mm -hmm. sneaking on on them unawares but turned it into kind of less of a comedic moment, more of a really, really powerful character moment for Bilbo. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And for Thorin. No, I thought it was, I thought that was great. That that, that was one of the moments when I was really sort of smiling when we got to that time of my first watching through the film. And I was like, doggone it. If it isn't the book answer, I can't believe it. The answer to this bloody riddle is A. I never saw that coming. But anyway, um, I mean, <laughs> but, uh, but but yeah, I, especially since it looked like it was going to be. I mean, uh, they were all in play at that moment. Like you know, <laughs> in the in the couple minutes leading up to that, like it could have been any one of them. And then uh, and anyway, but um, but no, I I I I totally agree with that. And what you get, you know, that difference, um, the change that was made you know, with his sort of sneaking in is instead of, you know, in the film, it's, it's, it's important for Bilbo because it's a testimony, his competence, you know, his ability with his invisible ring to sneak in past, you know, Balin doing lookout uh, duty, Um, you know, his reputation rises with the dwarves. You know, this is, this is sort of a moment of his, of his showing his competence. Um, And then you get that great moment of him introducing him and Balin introducing themselves to each other again. And he's really meeting the dwarves, you know, on a new footing here in this moment. Well, in the you get a very similar thing 
in the film, but it's done totally. This is not about his competence as a burglar. It's it's more about his character. It's more about it's more about his heart, about his willingness. Um, you know, thinking back to those characteristics that Thorin says in the beginning that he values. Um, you know, a, a, a you know loyalty and a willing loyalty, heart. yeah, willing heart, stuff. yeah. And you know that's what that's what Bilbo is really showing, um, and that, that I thought was a fascinating shift. Um, there was not, the, you know, the issue wasn't is Bilbo a sufficiently competent adventurer to be able to escape the mountains. The question was, what does Bilbo want to do? You know, is Bilbo going? Did he turn around and run home at the first chance he got? Which is what they all assume he did um, when they hear what Nori and his one line in the film. Um, uh, says or you know or 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 is he not and that's what he comes back and proves is you know no like you know i've 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 i made a choice i made a choice to stay i made a choice to come back um and uh and i i i thought that that was i agree that 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 was very well done but it's 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 a it's a neat place it's a neat comparison because of how close they came to the to the events of the book in that moment um, really invites that comparison. And I think when we do it, we can see the sort of the different things that these two stories are emphasizing at that moment, the different things that they're interested in. And I, 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 thought, I thought it worked very well. Actually, this is a <clears throat> perfect uh, place to transition to my final question for you guys, because this touches on something Philip Boyens has said regarding the choice of ending uh, location. And I know we, 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 we all, like, you know, ultimately this is where we sort of, not, not initially, but this is ultimately yeah. where we all felt it would end because of the overwhelming evidence. And I know in general I think the, the feeling amongst this community, the, sort of the Tolkien Professor Rills and Dark community, was one of, like, we don't, we don't understand that ending place at all. Um, that's way too early. You're leaving too much for the future films. I still have a lot of worries about that, and, and I know – I will really begrudge the the Radagast the Brown Chase sequence if it means later on that something awesome gets cut <laughs> from a later film. Right. But I did see an interview with Philippa Boyens where she said that, you know, in choosing where to split the films, they were thinking not just about geography. And in fact, they felt like for a film, geography mattered less than character arc. And that they felt like this, like right after the Riddles in the Dark game, and right, you know, and Bilbo finding the ring and stuff, is kind of the ideal place from a character standpoint to break. You know, this is this is kind of one of the first major steps in his character, especially the way they wrote it. He finds the ring, he wins, you know, he shows the nerve to win the riddle game, escape the mountains, he shows mercy on Gollum, and then, you know, the way they add it, he has this moment of, of, of resolve to, to help the dwarves, and then, and then um, you know, uh, risks his life to, to save Thorin, and that, that, you know, really going past that wouldn't have worked from a character standpoint. That, that, that is a great sort of stanza for character, and that the next film will be about a different sort of character journey for him. And having read that and thought it through, I, I get it. Like, I'm still worried about real estate, screen real estate and time, but, yeah. but I, I'm starting to realize, I think I see what she's saying, that, like, you know, even if there's particular things I want to see on screen that get sacrificed, this really kind of makes sense. This is a very good place to end. I do agree that the arc and the shape of it did work and did make sense. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I still think, I still think if with some reduction, 
you know, with like, uh, you take out the, the chase sequence and you take out the stone giant fight. And you, I mean, I, I still think you could have done, um, you know, maybe even the trip into Mirkwood. I don't know. Maybe you could even have gotten as far as the kid as the capture by the Elven King. Um, but I, I, again, here, I'm, I certainly agree that everything else aside and everything else that we know about the story to come aside, if you just watched the story of this film, it worked like that arc worked, like the story mm-hmm, that is told mm-hmm. about Bilbo's character in that film works. And so therefore I am willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. And even though it seems like there are so many things that need to happen and I'm really worried about how cramped film two seems like it will have to be. Um, I, you know, I'm willing, you know, they did a good job with the arc in this film. So, you know, maybe they know what they're doing in film two also. So I'll try not to proactively <laughs> think as though. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I agree with you that as written, you know, as the script has ended up, yes, I agree. I mean, I think it makes sense that they, they stopped it there. But remember, they were originally going to have two films. So my question to Philippa was like, okay, what were you then going to do when it was only two films? Um, right. You know, for this film, I think what they could have done, I think they could have gotten as far as the spiders. Right. I think Bilbo's hero moment could still have been the spiders, and he and Thorin, Thorin didn't have to get, you know, Thorin could have been part of that. They still could have had the same, you know, hug, hug, hug thing go on, <laughs> and then subsequently get captured by the elves. You know, I mean, I think they could have done that. Now, they would have had to probably shorten Bjorn's time, and maybe that's another reason. Is you know, Well, I still think they're going to have to shorten Bjorn's, Bjorn's time. I mean, I can't imagine how they're going to shorten I actually read... I actually read an article on the One Ring that that his role is actually getting broadened. I have to go back and reread the thing, and I'll get back to you guys in a future I mean, episode. But in um, principle, I find that easy to believe. In that, you know, we don't want him to come well, from now, absolutely yeah. nowhere at the end. But again, just thinking about, you know, as Dave said, screen real estate. I mean, with all the stuff you've got to do in film two, seriously, how much time are you going to spend on, you know, the animals waiting on tables in Bjorn's house? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, maybe. But, um, well, but... and a little bit that I've seen of, of, you know, the cast, there's a little thing I put up on the Riddle is in the Dark page, which was a little video of some of the cast members talking about the second movie. And two of the guys, James Nesbitt and Aiden Turner, say that the scenes in Lake Town are really awesome in the second movie. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, you know, the characters you meet and all that stuff, I'm thinking, oh, geez, okay, well, then that's going to have to be developed in the second movie. So you're right. I mean, the, there is a real estate issue. The list of, the list of scenes that, yeah, <clears throat> it seems small. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it seems, it's, it's it been seems, a concern of ours from the get-go. It seems highly likely that Bjorn's going to get the, the short end of the stick uh, uh, in this next film. That's I also, to me, too. I was, I was thinking it through. I, I think we can be relatively confident that we're going to get to Smaug, to Bilbo's encounter with Smaug. Um, uh, and actually, this is this is kind of a nice transition into sort of the, the final thing I just want to chat briefly about today, which is sort of, game plan for season two of Riddles in the Dark. And I think I think one thing we can do is we can be not quite so obsessed about trying to only ask questions about the current film because right. the truth is we're going to have a really fast turnaround for the third film. So yes. I think it's kind of fine if some of the questions we, we, we discuss and pose this year are things that probably will not apply until the third film. Um, but I do think – I think thinking about, okay, where's the next split going to be? Yeah. Um, we, we know for sure that we will probably 
Well, okay, we don't know anything for sure, but going on sort of the general rule of thumb that Peter Jackson doesn't release promotional material um, uh, that that isn't you know going to be out in the next film. We've seen an image of Bilbo lying on a, a mound of gold, so it seems pretty likely that we're going to get Smaug. One thing I was thinking though is, it's to me it seems almost certain uh, that. Um, that they're probably going to, you know, so Bilbo encounters goes down into the Lonely Mountain twice, right? Correct me if I'm wrong yes. about that. Yes. That three times. I'm sure we're only going to go down once. Fine, yeah. I have a. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have a, I have a feeling he's going to go down once. Like that, that seems like one of those things that in a film that seems like unnecessary sort of screen time, like mm-hmm. having going through the rigmarole of having him go down, come back up, go back down again. I, I have a feeling that's going to happen once. <clears throat> no, that makes sense. I mean, he can totally palm a cup and uh, and then Smaug wakes up and he has the conversation and runs away with the cup. That's very easy to imagine. And I can yeah. see that toward the end and then Smaug finding the cup gone and then he rises from the mountain and that's the end of movie two. And the fact yeah. is where we don't that, get that, that we don't actually get him getting killed until the beginning of movie three. Yeah. The fact is that Tolkien was doing that too. I mean, in the draft of The Hobbit, Bilbo originally went down like four times and Tolkien himself was right. It was more efficient in cutting those down. Yeah. That's right. So um, on game plan for season two, just uh, I think – in the interest of time, and, and especially because Corey, you know, you know, it's holidays. Go hang out with your kids. Um, yes. You probably want to play some Wii. <laughs> exactly. Um, so we won't spend a lot of time on this. This is mostly. I just want to toss this out and get our listeners. I, I would like to invite our listeners to send some feedback and and share ideas and stuff because I think we'd like to make um, some improvements, some changes. And yeah, I know audio quality. We're working on it. Um, so please don't <laughs> complain about that. Uh, if you're going to write in about auto, the, the one the one comment we'll accept about audio quality is is constructive, like actual, like here's how to do things yes. better. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <clears throat> or if somebody wants to help me figure out my my systems, that's you know yeah. that'd be great. Or yeah. or buy us better equipment. <laughs> um, so. Uh, so just in general, I think we're probably going to keep pretty much the same format for the riddles and the dark episodes, the riddles and the conundrums. We'll probably have about 20 to 25 new riddles this, this year, you know, about one yeah. every two weeks. Definitely um, being a little bit less in the dark than we were at the beginning <clears throat> of last year. Uh, we will probably have a more structured plan from the beginning. I mean, we already have a pretty long list of things that we want to cover and come back to. So yeah. last time, last year, we were kind of just addressing things as they came up and occurred to us. We will definitely have more of a plan and would certainly invite people's contributions to that. Yeah. We, we would, if you have a burning question, we would really love to hear it. Um, or a suggestion uh, for a riddle for, no the second, yep. for the second season. Yep. Yep. So we will, we will, we will come up with a way to maybe we'll start a, a thread on the, the uh, Riddles in the Dark Facebook page or, um, or on the Mythgard site or something to, to get people to suggest some riddles and stuff. Um, and we, I think another thing we'll probably do this, this year is, um, uh, probably there's some questions that, that maybe make really good riddles that don't necessarily need a lot, a, a whole episode of discussion. So we might even do multiple riddles, yep. introduce multiple riddles, yep. um, uh, as you know, or even introduce riddles without even an, uh, an, an actual podcast episode to go with it. <laughs> we'll certainly do that. I have a list of about, I have a list of, of almost 10 riddles, uh, from this year that I think that we either postponed or that I think could be reopened. Yes, um, definitely. 
you know, maybe with some tweaks. So that definitely will probably certainly reintroduce some riddles from the first. Yana says we should call it riddles in the dim. <laughs> riddles in the <laughs> That's dim. right. Riddles in the riddles in the dim. Not quite so dark. Riddles in um, the gloom. I would call it. There we go. <laughs> so uh, um, just to give people's heads up, we're, the the digest as it once existed is going to go away because we decided that's redundant and that's going to be reformatted, um, reformulated. It won't go away completely. It's just we're not going to make it yet another episode of two or more people sitting around talking um, for hours. Yes. Uh, uh, one thing that I really am going to try to do is get more organized with our analysts because what I would like to do is release an episode, discuss it, you know, discuss the riddle in that episode, and then keep it close to listener voting until maybe like a few days to a week have gone by and give you guys a chance and get all of our analysts to give us their predictions so that when you guys are going in to do your Facebook voting, you have you have all that information to take into account because that's kind of the whole point of having our quote unquote expert analysts um, uh, prognosticating on this is to help you guys think about it. Like it's it's right. kind of useless to kind of you know to release our our episode, open the Facebook post, everyone votes, and then say, oh, and here's what the experts thought because then it's right. like you know eh, I already voted. So um, so I think we're going to try to to get a tighter loop. Um, you know, a faster turnaround on getting analyst contributions, but also we may also delay um, listener voting a little bit. We'll see. Um, yep. We'd love to hear people's. In addition to you, in addition to listeners sending us their feedback about sort of uh, um, questions and riddles and things that you'd like to hear discussed or that you think would make a great um, prediction, we'd also just like to hear feedback about sort of you know the way the game runs, things we can do to make it more fun, more interesting, more challenging. Um, any 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 additional ideas that you have about like good content that would be fun to to, to create. Uh, we we have a lot of things we're bouncing around that we will share with you probably relatively soon. So, um, anything you guys want to add to that? No, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't Ooh. think so. I mean, I, I must say that there's a little piece of me that's now going to, you know, uh, curiosity as to what people are now going to be sending us, given that carte blanche invitation you just gave. <laughs> 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 yeah, and I'm not making people any promises that will actually do anything you suggest. Um, there you go. But... There you go. Okay, I, I like that. That's you know, I, I probably should have said that actually, but I yeah. I got Dave to say it instead. No, no, no pro no promises. Uh, um, because there's but only feel so free much... to let us know. <laughs> <clears throat> there's only so much we can do, but but we want you to know that we are listening. Uh, we do we yes. do care about what you think. Yeah, yeah, and uh, no. So I mean, this is definitely this is definitely going to be fun, and I'm looking forward to this. You know, it's th there's there's a, definitely a fun um, new angle of this year. You know, in that we have this you know this artifact now. You know, we have film one right. uh, to be doing. You know, so the 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 thing becomes um, you know it, it becomes in a sense uh, you know it's it's in physics terms, moved from a one-body problem to a two-body problem, you know, that we That's have right. not only our analysis of the books and then our projections, but we have analysis of the books plus analysis of film one plus our projections. And so it gets at this point, wow. I think, not uh, not sort of less speculative, but more com but more complex and therefore more fun and more interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I actually I think we have a lot more room to to we we have additional freedom. It's a ch it'll be a challenge because I think 
some of the things that we're going to want to talk about this year will be specifically, you know, it used to be kind of how will they adapt the book. Now it's going to be where are they going, and that right. could well mean moving away, you know, even further away from the book. Like I think the the Nazgul storyline is one where that's a, a strong potential. Mm -hmm. But I think it's still going to come back to the books. Um, it may involve a lot more. Yeah, and it, it may involve a lot more talking about not necessarily the Hobbit, but uh, the quest for Erebor, unfinished tales stuff. But right. but I'm really excited. Like I, I think this is going to be a real chance to to move away from to move away from kind of the purest angle to this, which is here's a scene in the book. How will that look on screen? You know, right. what trivial details will they include? But more talking about what are the themes they're exploring in the film and how do those jive with what Tolkien was doing or what Tolkien might do? Um, yes. I think we really have a chance to think about if Tolkien were reimagining The Hobbit as a more mature story for, you know, intended for adults, not for children, how might that, how, how might that compare to what Peter Jackson's doing here? Yep. Yep. I, I have a parting comment that I want to make. We could maybe turn this into a soundbite commercial for Riddles in the Dark. I got to say, <laughs> My enjoyment of this movie was was completely informed by this podcast. I mean, in other words, I I cannot imagine going to see this movie without having had this podcast for the past year. It, it, it made it made like all the difference in what I looked for, my grounding in the in the original book, my you know all of that stuff. I just think this has just been wonderful. So, and I am thrilled that I get to participate. But I would be saying this even if I was just a listener. I promise. Yep. Yeah, I, no, I mean, I, I definitely, uh, you know, it's it's it, it has been for me an instance of one of the things that I have maintained from the beginning, uh, you know, of my podcast, which is you know thinking through, and uh, you know, really doing you know careful and thoughtful analysis of 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 something should not decrease your enjoyment. You know, if you feel like you have like sucked all the fun out of something by thinking about it carefully. Um, then, well, I think there's probably something wrong with your thinking about it. I mean, it's, I, it's, that's more fun, you know, and it should add more fun. Um, and I know that my own, my own viewing of the film also was very much enriched by all the thought that we have put into this, uh, in advance. And, uh, it's been, that's definitely been a lot of fun. I'll We're getting a lot of agreement. Experience. We're getting a lot of agreement from people. Andy Higgins says, let's do it for Star Wars 7. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, there's it's, there's no hope. It can't be salvaged. <laughs> yeah, actually, that sounds like a good, you know, instead of a new hope, that's that's a good title, right? Star no Wars hope. Seven. No hope. No hope. <laughs> I um. Well, I'm really will... looking forward to Corey's thing on New Year's Day too. I'm really looking forward yeah. to your to your yeah. adaptations podcast. That's I'm going to be. Really I'm cool. excited about that as well. Um, and Sharon Off did say that that. To 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 um, the Mythgard horn um, that that the Hobbit class really added during. Oh yeah, and well, yeah. and you know, and I'll yeah. be more extreme. I I think I can honestly say I would not have enjoyed this film if it hadn't been for this podcast. Because I think if I wow. if it hadn't been for you, Corey, and just you know this whole world of sort of this 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 um, interesting online Tolkien mm -hmm. academic thoughtful community, if I'd just gone into this film the way I went into the Lord of the Rings films, I think I would have hated it. <laughs> I think there's a very good chance your brain that, would have I would exploded. Have, I would have gone in and I would have been like, they changed that, they changed that, I hate that, you know, I don't know what they're doing. This, you would have been I, carried out by security, <laughs> screaming. There's a good chance. I, you know, I might not even gone to see it. 
but oh. because of because of my experiences doing this podcast, I really enjoyed it, and I really get it, and uh, and I, I really I think this podcast rescued me from from being the <laughs> the, the judgmental purist who you know who doesn't well, like anything. Good. Well, you know, one thing I will say, in thinking about you know Sharon's comment about the the are the Mythgard Hobbit class, I will say that I have noticed um, a you know a very few of the people who took who took my hobbit class this past fall had that same kind of purist reaction you know i think when you look at the whole story mm-hmm. and the whole development of it um you know and 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 really sort of see not just not just reading the published book but really getting that kind of a sense of where Tolkien was coming from, how the story developed, what Tolkien thought about the story afterwards. When you really look at that whole thing, it's much easier to see um, what they're dealing with. You know, this, the, the whole framework approach to the to, to watching the film and to understanding the story is different. Um, and that's one of the things that I um, that I that I always hear. You know, when I'm hearing people um, complaining about things that were changed in The Hobbit, the main thing that I hear is that you know a, a lot of these people don't know the hobbit story as well as they think they do because yes there are some things that are that are different but actually you know as as i mentioned earlier before there are ways in which the story told in the film is less contradictory to tolkien's story than some of tolkien's own later ideas um so anyway yeah i that that's that is definitely um it helps it helps a lot um so just to take that to take that plug to its uh, next logical development. I am offering my <laughs> Hobbit class again this coming spring. So there's still time to enroll if you would like and to. And as a student Hobbit. in it, I highly recommend it. I'm a testimonial. It's a great <laughs> course. It really is. Yeah, it is a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to doing it again. So You're not just a spokesperson. You're, gonna, you're also a client. <laughs> I'm right. also a client. That's right. That's right. In the, in the Hobbit club for men and women. Uh, make this sound even more like an infomercial. Um, I think you know, it's even going to be – frankly, I think it's going to even be more fun next semester because of the fact that the movies come out now. I mean I, I – you know, I think it would be fun to just – like be a fly on the wall for that course because it's going to be. Oh, well, there's 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 one more additional text to add to the cur- right. to the curriculum. Now. That's right. So well, and it's yeah yeah and then of course you just add in the fact that it's always I, as a teacher I've always found it more fun doing a class the second time. You know, so so one thing sure. one thing I do want to do. Um, moving forward with this podcast is I do want to get more contributions from our listeners and, and particularly from the the very savvy myth crowd mythguard crowd yeah um, I'm not sure how to do that and this this and I want to make sure we do this in a way that doesn't create a whole lot of extra really time consuming work for us but um, I think one place we might start is we might see if there's a way for people to record short audio contributions that include not just maybe like a brief review of the film and, and what you liked about it, but, uh, you know, kind of your experiences of the Rills in the Dark game or of the Mythgard Hobbit class and how they really enriched your experience of watching the film. I think that's something we would love to kind of oh, be yeah, able that to, would be great. to help help promote and stuff. So so that's something just to, you know, for the listeners to think about. And, I'll, and, and actually, if you have a good idea about the, a nice a nice way to, to – you know, a good a good technical way to do this to for people to, to give us audio contributions uh, other than set up a Dropbox, um, which we could do. But if I, I'll I'll be thinking about sort of what's a good way to do it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I definitely I think I think that this is a common theme that people really that this really added to their experience. So yeah, yeah. All right. Well, awesome. Shall we wrap it up? Yeah, uh, maybe definitely. An, maybe We're end gonna... with a. Uh, 
This is this is now by far week. our longest episode, by yes. the way. Oh god. <laughs> yes. And people um, have stayed, so thank you very much yes. for staying, everybody. We have more yeah. people now than we had at the beginning, actually. <laughs> why, don't we, why don't we end with a why don't we end with a a, a, um, a, a short uh, informal commercial for next week's event? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for next week's uh, for, for the the for podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, wait, wait. What event? Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, so, okay. So next week uh, at 2 p.m. Eastern time on New Year's Day, um, uh, I'm going to be doing an episode. I'll be doing it through the NetMoot so people can participate. But basically, I want to kind of address in general, not thinking specifically of our riddles or anything, but just, you know, to do a general discussion of the book and my focus of the film. And my focus is not just to do a review of the film and to to do some analysis of it, which I'm going to do, but in particular to be talking about you know like what do you do as a Tolkien fan in watching these films you know and how do we approach this what kinds because I think this is the thing which has to me been more uh been really on my mind as people have been kind of bombarding me very understandably and very benevolently uh with uh comments and complaints and questions and things about the film um and you know, I, I mean, I, I certainly I want to address many of those things, and I will address many of them over the course of it. But I think far more important than talking about these individual cases is it's made me really want to talk more about the general principles involved, and and really kind of you know what what the film is doing, what we're doing when we're listen when we're watching it, and and you know how I would recommend um, people uh, be approaching and thinking about. Uh, this stuff. So, um, so anyway, so that's what I'm going to talk about next Tuesday or Wednesday, next Wednesday um, at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Um, we will have, you know, we, we'll be able to have people here in the net moot so you guys can make comments as we go along, but it's going to be primarily just a, a, a podcast episode from me talking through this stuff. And that's it. That sounds fantastic. And, uh, and, yeah. and he's also doing uh, the last session of the Hobbit class that night. So Yeah, that's know, right. He's one Later that night, we're doing our follow-up. Uh... That is dedication. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, you know. Corey Olsen, The Hobbit. <laughs> Seven, it's 24-7. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and to and, and to, to to add another dimen- d- dimension to it, I've just started reading uh, the Hobbit again with Nicholas. So uh, now, like in my spare oh time my with gosh. my kids, we're doing the Hobbit again too. Yeah. Well, this oh, is actually cool. this is this is very this is very, this is very cool stuff. Nicholas is doing research now because he is uh, he has a Hobbit related project that he's working on. So. Oh really? What's the topic? Uh, well, the topic is actually my second book. Um, which I've started working on. So, oh. child labor. Exactly. Yes, I am <laughs> recruiting a great deal of child labor, and uh, Nicholas is the fir- is on on the front lines of that effort. So, uh, All right. so yeah. Does he ride on his Does he ride on a zipline? <laughs> um, if he had anything to say about it, he certainly would. So, uh, would do, you know, yeah. I, great. I, 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 great. I would appreciate you not mentioning that actually uh, in his presence because he might insist on one. <laughs> if he thinks that a zipline could be included in this package, he would absolutely have uh, included that in the contract, I think. So, yeah, yeah. But, um, uh, oh, God, and now we have Yana's volunteering to build him one. <laughs> oh, believe me, he would be happy about that. But, uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um, <laughs> 
but uh, no, so that's, um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's, so anyway, so yes, I am, I am like, <laughs> it's going to be strange, you know, in a few years, it's going to be a little bit weird not to be doing the Hobbit full time for years. Oh, we have the anymore. extended edition. We can continue the rules in dark with yeah. the extended edition. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. But no, it's just I'm just like sort of imagining like there will come a time in my life when I when I'm not working on the Hobbit. A post Hobbit world. Yeah, like then a we'll, post Hobbit world. Then you'll be then you'll be um working on uh, I don't know the 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 will they won't they bridge film. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Oh, uh, yes. Yes. Um yep. Yeah, no, there will be other stuff, but uh, anyway, it's it's I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying Hobbit World right now. So, me too, me yeah. too. Okay, well, let's wrap it up. Okay, well, thanks for listening and Godspeed. A very special thank you to all of our dedicated listeners who are willing to spend part of their Christmas holiday with us. It was a wonderful treat. Also, a shout out to my future brother-in-law Keith, who introduced me to this episode's theme song. Silent Night by the incomparable Christopher Lee. If you're enjoying this, you should buy it. You should also check out his entire album dedicated to Charlemagne. I'm pretty sure he's working on a sequel to that. Enjoy this, and I'd stick around till the end. There might be some extra material somewhere around there. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed. again to everybody for joining us and said that there really are more people here now than there were when we started which of course is another testimony to the fact that people know that we will go on for hours and hours so they you know like an hour and a half into the episode they're like oh they started an hour and a half ago i'll just tune right in because oh god robert brown is proposing thoron gill the legendary journey the legendary journeys yeah you know, I'm... I, I, Robert, I am totally with you. If I had to make right now a prediction of the subject for a bridge film, that's exactly what it would be. Yeah, but 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 you you I I don't maybe he doesn't intend it this way, but I'm reading into that a reference to the the old short lived um actually it wasn't even short lived uh, Hercules series and Xena <laughs> the Warrior Princess series. Maybe that's what it'll be a, a an episodic uh, an episodic serial television show of, of Aragorn. Oh, of the early career of Aragorn. Oh, yeah. you know. Well, yeah, I mean, remember and they even had the young Her- they had the young Hercules series too, and so they could do that the young. Aragorn series. That would oh, work. that would be yeah. hilarious. That would be so funny. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, no, that has like that has like 
a disturbing plausibility to it. Yeah, it really does. It, yeah, it is. It's 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 well, one of those ideas. Well, they did that with Indiana Jones too. Indiana, they had a young Indiana Jones series too. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, this is, this is one of those. This is one of those moments where we're, we we bring something up like this, and then I I'm like, you know, I really hope Peter Jackson and the Warner Brothers people don't listen to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> usually, I usually I wish they would learn, listen, but every once in a while I'm like, I hope they don't hear it. If they do listen, I hope they skip this one because I don't want. Them to. Well, don't worry. Oh, wait, we didn't record this. We didn't record. Well, yes, we have made the suggestion well, after we the are official recording closing, it, but I, I won't. Yeah, I yeah won't. unless <laughs> we splice it back in, we'll. Uh, yeah. But yeah, but no, actually, I can to- like a yeah, I know I could totally see that. You know, like a multi-season. You know, sort of Game of Thrones, the Tudors esque kind of thing. You know, with uh, Aragorn's career from his childhood. You know, starting back with like the Born of Hope stuff. You know, with his parents, and then going all the way up through. You know, his adventures in Rohan and in Gondor. I mean, you got yeah, like, dude. You, you know, could I can, totally do it Game of Thrones style. You could have a huge ensemble cast that's exploring events at multiple locations. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, you could clearly have a like, you know, Dunedain, uh, like leading up to the to the you know to the birth and childhood of Aragorn, season one, and then you get like, uh, you know, a Rohan season and a and a you know, Thorongil and Gondor season, culminating with the with the you know the the battle in the harbor. I mean, man, that could, it could totally work. <laughs> could totally work. Oh God, Gosh. man, boy, if only, if only there was some way for us to profit off of this. <laughs> what our, 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 our ideas. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, true. I, I already had, I had one stolen three weeks ago. I I don't remember when that. Oh, it was on a weekend, just hanging out with some people. I had a brilliant idea for a reality show, um, and then and then like three days later, somebody sent me an article from the Hollywood Reporter about a reality show that got picked up by the CW uh, that was just like mine. And in fact, I was telling a couple people who worked in the industry, and they were like, "Dude, I know some people at the CW. We got to do this." And my idea was basically the Hunger Games. Right. It's like right. I don't know why anyone is not just taking that idea and making it. it it's a it's a book about a reality t- TV show essentially. <laughs> right. Why does this reality TV show not work? And you could totally you could totally change it a bit so it's not lethal. You know, <laughs> it would be so easy to. And, and you could and it and it and it has so many you and you could take some of the the central ideas like the tribute thing. You could that would be so easy to turn that into an interactive online component, you know, people <laughs> voting for their favorite person and that person gets an advantage and stuff. And it, it maintains the whole it maintain you keep the combat, you use like paintballs or something non lethal like that. Um, you you keep the whole survival wilderness part. Um, you you know, you, you set up you set up cameras every surveillance cameras everywhere, like in the film, then it's like Big Brother. Oh man, this is a perfect idea. Somebody's doing it. <laughs> Got, just got bought by the CW. There you go. Yeah. You guys, I have such a downer. I have such a downer to tell you. I have what? such a downer to tell Uh-oh. you. Uh-oh. Well, go to meetings spit me out fairly early in the podcast. It just mm-hmm. like spit me out, and I had to come back in. I I forgot to hit start recording. Oh, it's I okay. Actually, I, I I have recorded it all the way through. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god. I thought I was going to have to do – remember in your early podcast days when you'd like have technical difficulties and you'd basically have to do like a monologue 
right. to fill everybody in. I right. thought I was going to have to do that. Right. And this is when we spent an hour and a half talking about these subjects. Oh, God, you recorded it. You know, it could it could well it could well be that that it, that that in effect that's what's going to be like anyway with my audio. You may you may want to you may just want to cut me out. Uh, any anytime I'm just making short comments, just remove me. Anytime I'm making a long comment, Trish, just like summarize, just record yourself summarizing. <laughs> just what come said. in and summarize. So what David essentially said. So was. so here's here's the part where David was talking about this, but you wouldn't know it from the audio we recorded because it just sounds like this. <laughs> Well, no, the most comical thing was the odd sounds in the background. I mean, it's in the background. Yeah, there were there were some times where it sounded like you sounded were like, like I was being beaten. Well, yeah, or like like you were walking through a busy kitchen or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> with like people yelling at each other and banging stuff around. <laughs> and, yes. uh, it's like I said to him in the great. chat room. I'm usually one with the weird background noises. You know, yeah, my parents, right. my dogs. Well, I love the, kind of I love really the fact that. Right at the instant where we were talking about a talking talking animals, your birds. Like, <laughs> yes, birds. I was noticing I that too. That's right. Yeah, I thought both, that was so like appropriate. That. Yeah. Just like that. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, so okay. I, I should have activated should, yeah. him again when we were talking about the talking raven. I should have had Buddha you know, do his thing. but I That's right. Well, thank God. <laughs> so thank God. You record redundant recordings. Always a good idea. Oh, that's um, right. I know. Trish, it's always a good idea. So, taking so a listen, Corey, you'll upload to Dropbox, I assume, right? Yep. If taking a listen to this, Trish, it, you're like, oh, God, this is going to be a nightmare to edit. <laughs> Feel free to write to, to dump it off on me. I have okay. I have time over the next few weeks. You have and time. I, and, okay. And if, if it's one of those things where we're going to have to go through and literally each time a person's talking, you're going to have to adjust the levels that we're all all lined up and, and yeah, clean up okay. and stuff. If it comes to that, make me do it. I'm I'm happy to. I'll do let it. you know. Okay. Um, yeah, because when you switched over back over to the internet, um, you came in changed. a lot louder. Yeah. 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 Um, so one one other thing too. So uh, I have a I have something I definitely want to do, Corey. I don't know if there's a way to do it, but I think we absolutely need to record a commentary track for the films. Uh, yeah. <laughs> going back to the going back to the Lord of the Rings films for sure. Um, uh, you know. This is something that I have not yet totally given up. I, it, it, it is still my goal to try to convince them to actually let me do this. Like I would, I would. It, this is like the one pitch that I would make to Peter Jackson: is please let me do a commentary track on the DVD. It'll cost you nothing. I won't even charge you for it. Just let me oh, do that it. Would be so fun. And uh, that would be fun. So, uh, so yeah, I'm actually not without. It. Let me just say, one way or another, that will happen. Well, you know, the other day when I, I shared on Facebook that I was watching Fellowship of the Ring kind of by default because it was like the only thing on TV and it was the extended edition, we got into a little conversation, and this is worldwide. This is like Penelope in New Zealand and Yana yeah. in the Netherlands. You know, I mean, this is like worldwide. We were talking about how much fun it would be to do like a watching of the extended edition sync, you know, in sync and then stop at certain, you know, say, okay, we're going to stop at this, when the, you know, at this scene or we're going to stop, we're like, right from Weathertop, we're going to stop and then talk, like jump on Skype and talk. Right. But you could do something like that. We could do something like the net mood where we, yep. we watch a piece of the movie and then we, you know, I think that would be really fun. It would With be Fellowship fun. of the Ring, obviously. I mean, uh, yeah. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I see. It would have to be multiple days since we have time zones to deal with. But Right. Right. It's well, hard enough to do that in one time zone. Well, it sounds like Corey. <laughs> Corey, it sounds like um, it sounds like probably probably we should hold off on making one of these at least for the Hobbit film if there if there's still an outside chance of get, letting 
Peter of having Peter Jackson uh, of Peter Jackson having you do an official one. I'm uh, I I I would I I will I I'm gonna ask. I'm gonna ask. I'm determined right. just to just to just oh, to ask oh, because awesome. it would be fun. It would be great to do. You know, I, I don't know if uh, he'll pay any attention to me, but uh, but I'll ask. Okay. Okay. Well. Uh, um, so all right, so we'll we'll hold off on doing one. Although maybe maybe Trish and I'll do like a bootleg one. Yeah, we could. And Robert Brown says Robert Brown says we could call it the Mystery Tolkien Theater Three Thousand. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, we could do we could do because I I assume if you did one for an official one for the film, Corey, it would be a Tolkien professor thoughtful academic one. Yeah, um, probably. So, so so we could record a we could record a, uh, a more of an MST style one uh, entertainment. <laughs> Angle one, um, and that wouldn't necessarily anticipate uh, your uh, yeah, the, the no, right, probably right, not. Right. So yeah, anyway, you mean like the one, like you're talking about how the moth went around the corner and found the eagles and said, "Okay, I'm just going <laughs> right. to yes. <laughs> Also, also the uh, the other thing, to, I guess, the other thing to keep in mind is if we were to do one, we could totally do one for the Lord of the Rings films because that cat's out of the bag. We should definitely do yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and but it, probably we shouldn't do one for the Hobbit right now because the truth of the matter is the only way to actually do an accurate one for the Hobbit right now. Well, you can imagine how we would, because you couldn't. You know, you, you need to be watching the film while you're doing it, and right, of course right. you can't record it while you're in the film. So that only leaves one other option for how we would manage this. So right, uh, exactly. Yeah. So, okay, that, that we're not going to do that. Yeah. We're not going to do that. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. All right, guys. Well, I look forward. I will look forward to hearing you next week, Corey. On okay. Yes, I look forward to. I look forward to doing that. So, I'm sure I'll see some of you guys back here again next week, and I look forward to that. Okay. Bye, everybody. Merry Christmas, everybody. Bye.